Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri, and we are XJob Downloaded. Today we're going to interview Andy Merry. Andy is a beef eater at Tower of London and a former member of the Royal Marines. Andy, thank you very much for hosting me in your wonderful home here today. You're welcome, Paul. It's nice to see you. It's um, it is a great place, and I know I've said it before today, but I I can never get over coming in here. The the fact that every king and queen since 1066 has walked through these streets, yeah. and having had a couple of beers here before, I've walked out or. Got out. Of I've here. seen you stumbling out. Yeah, and it's it's quite it's quite surreal, and and, and living here it, it must be uh, it must be a treat, mate. Um, Andy, where did it all begin? My life. Yeah, your life. Oh. Where, where 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 were you born? What, what's... I was born in Dover Hospital in October nineteen sixty six. My parents, my dad was a Royal Marine uh, based in Deal in Kent, which is where they lived. My mum was a Wren, uh, and they so they met in the barracks in wow. Deal. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, there was no maternity hospital in Deal, so I had to go to Dover. So I'm almost ashamed to say I was born in Dover. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm not from Dover, so I was only there a night and then I went back to Deal, which is where I grew up. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I grew up in Deal. Um, uh, yeah, I had a good childhood. Uh, How long did your dad serve in the, the Royal Marines? Well, it's a funny story. So my dad... He's a, he was a child of the war. He was evacuated from Coventry when he was a youngster. Oh, he ended okay. up in the Elephant and Castle, which is where he sort of grew up. But sadly, because he, he never went to school, he, he never learned to read or write. Right. So anyway, he went to join the Navy. No, he didn't. He went to join the Royal Marines, I'm sorry. But because he couldn't read the word Marines or Navy, <laughs> he accidentally joined the Navy for nine years because uh, he couldn't get out before nine years. So he, he did nine years as a, as a sailor. Uh, he told me he was on the first submarine that went... Uh, all the way across the Atlantic, completely submerged. I don't know if he was just, that, that was spinning the yarn, I don't know. Um, and that he learned to swim when he was based on an aircraft carrier. Someone pushed him off the side of an aircraft carrier and he had no choice but to swim. Brilliant. So after nine years, um, I guess he'd learned to read by then uh, and went and signed the correct paperwork. So he then went and joined the Royal, Royal Marines and he did his commando course when he was 29, which I believe at the time was was amongst the oldest that anyone had ever done it. Wow. At 29. Uh, so he'd done 14 years in the Royal Marine, so 22 years in the naval service altogether. Brilliant. Um, so yeah, he was. I, I, I remember him going to work. He used to take us to work. Me and my brother. I had a brother. He's a year younger than me, uh, or have a brother. He's still alive. <laughs> yeah, if he listens had, to this, yeah, you yeah, are still yeah, here. I've still got your sign. Um, uh, yeah. So my dad used to take us into work. Um, he'd drop us off in the armourer's shop, uh, and I got possibly an unhealthy interest in guns from a very early age. Um, but could never lift them. I always remember never been able to lift them because they, they were so heavy to a toddler. Um, and interestingly, years later when I did join the Marines, as a young 18-year-old Marine, first day in 40 commando, was sent down to the armoury to draw my rifle and who should be stood there? Uh, but uh, but the the armourer that Same we used armor. to sit on his lap, yeah, he was now the unit armourer at 40 commando. And oh, I was no. like, how old do you now feel, Dave? Uh, here I am, a fully-fledged bootneck. And uh, we saw him actually at a reunion 
maybe three years ago. He's still alive and kicking. Tiny little fella. Fantastic. And, uh, yeah, so so that was it. Yeah, so grew up in Deal. Uh, I, did you spend all your time in Deal? I mean, did, mm. did your dad get deployed overseas? No, 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 no there was no... He, he was based at the barracks in Deal. So he, he left in 1976, I was 10. Right, OK. When he went outside. My mum had left the Marines, uh, left the Navy rather, to, to have me and my brother. Uh, so my dad left um, when I was 10, I believe. And then he went and worked on the ferries. He worked on towns in Torreson ferries. Did he? Yeah, down the engine room. Uh, he'd had a bit of experience, I think, in his time in the Navy with engines. So he ended up uh, working on the ferries and he was actually on the uh, Herald of Free Enterprise, which went over, but that was his day off. Wow. So, uh, so yeah. So um, It's one of those things that, where were you on particular yeah. days? And I remember that yeah. that going over. Well, I was on the lash up in uh, Wolverhampton with a friend of mine and we went to get a kebab at the end of the night and it was on the TV. And I remember thinking, oh my God, and we didn't have mobile phones in those days. No, so there's no way I could phone home to see if my dad was all right. So it took a little while to find out that it was actually his day off. So he, he wow. went on it. So yeah, yeah. Um, but a lot of his mates were divers on it, and they had some pretty horrendous stories mm, of, of, yeah, of some of the stuff. But yeah. Well, I I um I got posted down there in only for a couple of weeks. I think that was probably eighty seven, eighty eight, when they had the seaman strike down at Dover. Right. Yeah. Yeah. P and O ferry strike, and right. I walked in, and the the sergeant said, um, "Have you ever done public order?" I said, "No." He said, "Right." You, Put that on. I'd never done any public order. <laughs> You're going to need it. Yeah, and yeah. I went down and we stayed at Sean Cliff Barracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was a dump yeah. then. I mean, stayed there a few nights. They had, um, oh my life, what are the, uh, the uh, Northern Irish. Um, oh, the uh, Irish Rangers, as they used to be yeah, called then. Um, yeah, Ulster Defence Regiment. No, there was what? an Ulster Defence Regiment. Uh, I don't know if they were. I know in they the, were there it was the Royal Irish that were based in Dover. Oh, was it? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. They, they were. They, they were they yeah, a lot of local girls married them, married some of the right. some of the soldiers from there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was an experience to say the yeah, least. Yeah, I bet. So you go through your normal schooling in. Yeah, I went in, to in uh, grammar school. Oh, did you uh, now? I did, yeah. You passed 11 plus. It's hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> no, 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 I did have you down to. Being able to uh, yeah, so I went to uh, a school called Sir Roger Manwards, which when I went was an all boys school. Right. So the year I left, in fact, was the first year that they let girls in. It's a totally mixed school now, still yeah, there. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, a so, grammar school. Or is it uh, I th- I'm not. Sure. I think it is. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure actually. I, I believe so. Um, but yeah, it was a proper grammar school. But by that time, um, I just wanted to join the Marines. I wasn't interested in anything academic. I, re- I mean, I really wasn't. And I was. My parents stopped going to parents evenings because they were told have you heard about that boy he's really naughty and they were like no and then it turned it was me <laughs> so uh, so they stopped going and all I wanted to do was play rugby uh, and um, and join the Marines and I remember in the third year when the um, when you had to decide what O levels you were going to do they have all these people come in from different industries and different jobs and universities and what have you and they taught you you know try and almost groom you into going one way or the other and I just went straight to the Royal Marines sergeant who who turned up from the careers office and said right mate where, where do I sign and he's like hold your horses fella um, he said you should join as an officer I said I don't, I don't want to join as an officer I want to be a corporal like my dad and he went no you're at a nice school uh, so I made a deal with him that if I got five O levels I'd stay on and do me A levels and join as an officer or try and join as an officer uh, and I in fact got four um which I was kind of happy about, I suppose, because it means I didn't have to wait any longer. So I left straight away at 17 to join up and then got my maths O-level, which is the one I failed when I was in the Marines. So I still got my five oh, there you in go. the end. So so what was the process? You, you you signed up at the local recruiting office? Yeah, Canterbury. 
Um, and again, I couldn't wait to do it. That's all I wanted to do. Um, so I went straight in there as soon as I was old enough to do it. I left school and I worked for a company called Petbo, which used to make generators. Um, and my little department, they used to make little electric cars. There was just three of us in there. I did a YTS, you might remember them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so I don't know, 25 quid a week or whatever it was. Um, and they were good lads, but I just remember that they used to take the mick all the time. He'd send me to for a long wait somewhere, you know, the old <laughs> Left classic. Left-handed screwdriver. Yeah, and he'd, 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 there'd be a box of literally thousands and thousands of nuts and bolts. And he'd say, right, I want to know how many nuts are in there, oh. how many bolts are in there. And um, I'd get up to, I don't know how many thousand. He'd come in and grab a handful and go back in the workshop. Oh. And I'd be like, all right, and one, two, oh. three, start all over again. So I worked there f- f- just really to fill in the time before I was old enough to join the Marines. So I went into Canterbury Careers Office uh, I want to join the Marines. He went, can you do 10 pull-ups? I said, I've got no idea. So he made me do 10 pull-ups in, on some bar, off a door, filled in the paperwork and uh, and was accepted. And uh, got joined. Shilling and... Uh, got me shilling, yeah. Joined on the 11th of June, 1984. Do you actually get a shilling? No. No. It's, I've still got all my uh, original paperwork. It's all inter- it's typed and, and photocopied and it's all typed. You know, yeah. it's nothing like you would get now in email oh, or something. No. Yeah, so it's quite interesting seeing it all. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah. So you get sent to Limston? Yep. Yep. What's that like? You, I mean, bear in mind, you've, you've been brought up in a military household. What was it like to... Because you knew how to clean your shoes properly, I would imagine. Well, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, my dad was, was quite good at that stuff. He, um, I remember on my way, so I was excited, but equally nervous, because that's all I'd ever wanted to do, was be in the Marines. So I didn't want to mess this up. Um, and I remember getting the train from Deal up to London, London down to Exeter, where you then have to change and get on the little to the little bomber, the little local train that goes to Exmouth. And there's a station called Limston Commando, which is there specifically for oh, okay. the Commando Training Centre. So every Royal Marine since God knows how long has got on that Go train. It's like a little rite of passage. But anyway, I, I remember waiting for that train at Exeter. And I just got talking to this fellow who had a big, his air was like this microphone, a big, big sort of like this. Uh, and we just got chatting. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm off to join the, join the Marines today, mate. And he's like, yeah, me too. And uh, his name is Mick Bradbury. And long story short, we ended up in the same troop in training. We went all the way through training together. We joined 40 Commando together at the end of training. And we're still friends to this day. That's and I literally met him. We were on the train heading down there. Um, that is so cool. Yeah, yeah. Still friends to this day. Um, and uh, yeah, so you, you turn up in a suit. You're told to wear a suit with a big suitcase. And then there's the, uh, the drill corporal waiting for you there. He takes your name and I think that's where you get your first bollock in, you know, some, you, you do something wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they march you up to the accommodation. And uh, funnily enough, I don't remember too much about training. It was that, it, it was such a, it, in those days, a very different to, to how it is now. I don't think they trained us. It was something to, to, to endure. Yeah. And um, I, I'm not going to say it was bullying. I'm not going to say that at all. It wasn't that. No. It's just how it was in those days. It's And, and it wasn't the right way of doing it, absolutely. And they, they know that now. And it 100% isn't like that anymore. But it was just something to, to endure and just something to get through. Yeah. Uh, and it was so bad. We had a particularly nasty corporal who, who was a bit of a sadistic uh, so-and-so. But by week 15 of training, there was only 15 of us left out of some 60 or whatever it was that started. Wow. So there, there was a massive attrition rate. And obviously now the Marines don't want that. They've, they've invested a lot of time and money in getting people yeah, there. So they don't want to just break them and send them on their way. So that wasn't the right way to do it. But anyway, so we had to mark time for a week while we waited for the troop behind us to catch up. And then all 15 of us then joined 
the troop behind us. And so we, so we didn't miss any, we just missed a week and we started, not started again, but we started at that week yeah, yeah. Uh, going through. And funnily enough, years later, I was in a bar in Sri Lanka and, uh, and I met the troop sergeant who was on my first troop sergeant, like called Al Tweed. And um, it, it, we'd had a few beers and he apologised to me. And it, it, it all came out in the wash that he was my troop sergeant, blah, blah, blah. And he apologised to me. He remembered the troop because of the decimation that was yeah. caused. And I think they all got called in and questions had to be asked. Why? Why are there so few recruits left, you know, at this stage of training? Uh, and he apologised to me all those years later. And I, and I said, Al, you've got nothing to apologise for. I didn't know any different. No. What I was doing was what I needed to do to get into the Royal Marines. I didn't know that that was probably a little bit of extreme. You know, they used to make us do press-ups on the backs of our hands. I've still got scars on the backs of my hands from that. Um, they made it, yeah, it was, it was, looking back on it, it was outrageous. It, it, it was outrageous. Yeah. But like I say, I didn't, it didn't cross my mind that it was bullying. It didn't cross my mind that it was something out untoward. But it wasn't uh, it, of, of its day, as you said. It's, yeah. it, that's how it was. You know, the necessity and yeah. proportionality of having to do press-ups on the backs of your hands. I mean, geez, that, that's just, yeah. that doesn't bear thinking about. And they'd all just come back from the Falklands. Right. So all of my training team, you know, this was in 1984, summer of 1984, two years earlier, They're they fine. were all fine yeah. in the Falklands. So I, I believe that I benefited from the Falklands, although I didn't take part in the Falklands War. Um, I think the experience that, that they as a training team gained did, although although they were quite brutal, um, I think that experience did me some good in the future, definitely. But what was that like? Uh, um, we, we spoke the other night and um, put it into perspective, 40 years before the Falklands War, bear in mind we're celebrating, or yeah. celebrating is the wrong word, but we're commemorating yeah. the you know the 40th anniversary of the Falklands. If you take that back... 40 years that's 1942 yeah. our, our grandfathers are fighting against the, the Germans you know London's being blitzed what was that like working with they were heroes in my yeah, eyes yeah same here yeah. yeah oh yeah we we held them um, we held them in very high regard um, and, and actually in, again interestingly all the way up until the 90s maybe early 90s initially but, but definitely well in fact 2000s the only people that had done any done it for real were the lads who'd been in the Falklands. So we all we always held them up, you know. And I joined Forty Commander as a young eighteen year old Marine. Everybody in the unit had three medals: a Falklands medal, a Northern Ireland medal, and a Cyprus medal. Right. And we we didn't have anything, of course, because <laughs> we just turned up. So I got my first medal in nineteen eighty eight when I went to Northern Ireland. So I, I, at least I got one, you know. The GSM. Yeah, um, but of course, when we had all come back from Iraq and Afghanistan in the two thousands. All the Falklands veterans wanted to speak to us, yeah, because they wanted to know what it was like in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, do you see what I mean? And it, was, yeah, no, it, it struck me one night it was, we were in the sergeant's mess because uh, all that stuff happened to me when I was a bit more senior. Um, it just struck me that all these years I've been going up to Falklands ads and I'm oh, amazing. You know, you were at Two Sisters, or whatever, but now they're, they're they want to know information from us, and it, yeah. it's kind of that big circle of life, I suppose. It just goes around. And there's that classic um, footage. I'm sure it's Marines, and they're yomping across, mm. and he's got a, um, a, a backpack, Bergen, whatever it is, or a radio, and he's got the a Union Jack yeah, yeah, on, yeah, on, yeah, on right. you know, and yeah. that will be it's an, iconic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. an embodiment. It's the when the Americans lifted the flag at Iwo Jima, yeah, yeah. it's it's on exactly the same lines, you know. And there's also a statue of that. Out, he's not there now. Excuse me. He was um, 
there was a big massive statue outside the Royal Marines Museum in Eastney, which isn't there. They haven't got a museum at the moment uh, because Eastney closed down. So we're, we're between museums. Right. And there was a big discussion where to put this guy. But he was that bloke. Wow. The statue was that fellow with the flag hanging, hanging yeah. off his day sack. And this year, I think it was, they, they've recreated that photograph because all those lads survived the war and um, they got them all back together, slightly older and, you know, yeah. doddering about a little bit more. But they, they got them in some kit and uh, they put the flag on the back of the same bloke. Uh, I think they walked on a track in Dartmoor, which looks exactly the same as the Falklands. And uh, and they recreated the photograph yeah, oh, for the 40th anniversary, so it's pretty cool. And I've I've got a, f- a few mates who who served out there, and um, very humble people. Yeah, yeah. It really, you know, like you guys going out to Afghanistan, Iraq. It's, it's I'm 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 in awe of you. Um, so you've you've done you you've gone to 40 Commando. Yep. How long were you there for? Did you um did you see all your time in 40? No. So I spent my first. Six, maybe seven years, six years, six years in Forty Commando. So I'm, all, I've always got a, I've always got a soft spot for Forty Commando in Taunton. That, that I always see that as my, my mother unit, yeah. if, if you like, because yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I just spent so long there. And originally, uh, but in those days, Forty Commando was called the Sunshine Commando because yeah, four two and four five were always in Norway. <laughs> they were always up in Scotland doing mountain training. Four, Forty Commando was always on some ship in the Med somewhere, or we'd be in the Caribbean, or we'd be somewhere like that, you know in the Gulf or whatever it was. Um, so yeah, those first six years, you know, I, I spent a lot of time on ship, a lot of time bronzing, basically. We did tour of, uh, my first tour abroad. In fact, the first thing I did uh, was in the Isle of Man, which wasn't particularly warm. <laughs> but uh, so again, almost literally the very first thing we did, we went to the Isle of Man. Uh, we were the guard of honour for their opening. I can't remember what it's called now, but it's, the, the, uh, it's their parliament. Right. Um, and they've got a, it's a it's a funny almost like Celtic. Well, I can't remember the name, but but anyway. So we we were the um, we were the guard of honour for that, um, and then the first proper trip I did away was in was to Belize. We spent six months in Belize in 1985, 85 into eighty six. So we had Christmas. I would spent Christmas in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, my RMR was over Christmas, which is awesome. <laughs> so yeah, that was a good introduction to life in the core. Uh, and it, yeah, it was just one long, you know, beach holiday, I suppose. You know, if we weren't in the jungle, we were, we were drinking somewhere and it was a very big drinking culture back in those days. It really was. But we weren't in any conflicts other than what? No, not really. It was, it was classed as an operational tour, Belize, because, uh, there's some issue Guatemala, I think Belize belongs to, to Guatemala. So that's why we're there patrolling the border, making sure the Guatemalans know that there's a British presence there. You know, yeah. they had a couple of Harrier jump jets out there, which would fl- flew around every now and then. Uh, but was it Honduras then? Uh, no, what what Belize? Yeah, what, no. Was, it was, well, it was called Belize still right. when 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 we were there. Um, so yeah, that was my first trip there, and then and then we did loads of med trips. You know, we'd, we'd sail down the med, stop in Gibraltar, Cyprus. You know, all the usual sort of suspects, Egypt. Um, yeah, and it was it was good. It was and good fun. Every large ship has a uh, detachment of Royal they marines. did in those days. Not anymore. Not anymore. No, no. There's not enough ships, I don't think, or or indeed marines to. I think there's only something like 6,000 Marines and right, certainly okay. not enough ships. But right. yeah, in my day, uh, that was a draft. You would get a ship's draft. Uh, I'd never wanted it. I did actually get one to HMS Manchester, but I swapped it for something. I can't remember what it was. Someone someone wanted to do it. I didn't. So I swapped whatever they were going to do. Um, but yeah, that that was up until the early 90s, I think, there were ships, ships attachments right. on, on most of, like you say, the bigger ships. There still is now on things like um, the, the commando carriers. So... Uh, the Bulwark. Um, can't remember the other one now. 
Albion, Bulwark and Albion, uh, they're commando carriers, so they've they've still got detachments marines on, but they they man the landing craft to okay. operate off those ships, um, and some of the HMS Ocean as it was then, oh, and also um, the two new aircraft carriers will have a detachment yeah. of marines on board as well, um, and they're they're there to defend the ship when it's alongside, but also to um, to rescue down pilots, so that's a new role. Okay, that, that yeah. was in, excuse me, that was introduced. Um, Rather like the Americans, uh, they, they, I think they call them PJs. So we've we've now got a role. The Marines have got a role. To, so they, if, if if a down pilot comes down, they can go. They can go and get them. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating how it's adapted because the the fact is that it's the same basic principle around. It's like yeah. policing, same principle, but because warfare's evolved and mm. the types of aircraft and everything else. The military's had to evolve with it. Well, the Marines have been particularly good at this. And again, I'm not speaking as a former Royal Marine, but but the Marines are very, very good at adapting to the situation in order to remain relevant and therefore remain the Marines. Because just before the Falklands, of course, they were going to disband the Royal Marines. They they didn't need them. You know, what's the point of having these Marines? Um, And of course, the Falklands kicked off, saved Save the Marines. You know, um, amphibious warfare at at reach is, is what Royal Marines do. Um, and so, so they were saved. And I remember the first Gulf War, there was very little for the, there were Royal Marines involved in small detachments or whatever they were doing, but there was no, it wasn't a mass event for the Royal Marines. Right. Uh, because the first Gulf War was a mobile war. It was, it was the army in their, in their APCs, tanks. Yeah. That's, that's what they'd always done. Of course, going across Germany, that's not our role. We never had vehicles in those days. Um, uh, and so there was no real role for Royal Marines, and so the Royal Marines thought, "Christ, we need to, we need to keep ourselves relevant, else we're going to get sidelined." So they came up with this thing called the Viking, um, and you might have seen the old Snowcat, we uh, BV two hundred sixes, yeah, um, which we would ha- we would operate in in Norway, and we'd even operate them in the desert sometimes. It was a nightmare because they the, the heater is on permanently inside these vehicles. So on a cold day like this, that's exactly what you want. But when it's 40 degrees in a desert, it's not that's really want. not what you want. So they, they weren't fit for purpose. They right. were better than nothing, but they weren't really. So somebody um, uh, designed, it was, to the layman, I guess they look very similar, but they're not similar at all. Uh, it's called the Viking, which is an all-terrain vehicle. It can actually swim. So it can go in water. And uh, it's a little bit scary when you're in the back of it and you are underwater. But there's, there's like, you know, four inches of it out the top of the water and it just chugs through the wow. water and can come out the other side. An amazing bit of kit. Uh, and it's armoured as well, so it's protected. So the guys in the back are protected. Um, and that was a big game changer because now the Marines can say, look, we've got protected mobility. We yeah. can move around the battlefield and be protected doing so. So it's a great thing. It, it could also operate in Norway. Um, and it really came to its forefront in Afghanistan when troops were operating in and around the green zone, which is the bit around the River Helmand. So it's all green and lush and beautiful, much different to what you would expect in Afghanistan. Um, but of course, to go into that was was very dangerous and, the, and it's the Taliban's home home ground. So the Viking was used a lot um, right. to, to move around and also to go and extract casualties because a helicopter couldn't get in there, but they could send this, these Vikings in to extract people. Right. And so the Marines brought that into Afghanistan and then they left them there uh, for the army to take over because they were such good at you know so good at that at that role and that and that made the marines relevant yeah um and then recently i believe they were going to disband 42 commando um 
because of course the marines are part of the naval service and the navy how do you see that i mean because it, i mean from an onlooker we we would say that you're don't take offense yeah. but you know it's ar- ar- army yeah well that, and i think the marines have always been the bastard stepchildren of the military because we are part of the navy yeah. you know and, and the standard joke with the army lads is well what does it say on your id card well yeah. it does say royal navy yeah, we, yeah. we carry a royal navy <laughs> id card so we are part of the naval service uh, and have always been part you know our job traditionally was to guard the ships protect the officers yeah so you'd always have marines but uh, on every ladder that went between decks um uh, uh, marines would always be at the back of the ship where the officers always were because they would they would protect the officers from uh from the sailors mutinying or whatever it was so there's always been a role and and of course they would provide shore uh, landing parties to go and assault whatever it was that couldn't be done from the sea um and but but obviously standing there we look like soldiers yeah um uh but we don't we're we're, we're commandos so we're we're uh, we're above and i hope no one listening takes offense at this but but a commando is clearly something a, a little bit of cut above everybody else. Yeah, no, you, no, you, no one will take you offense. You other, don't become a commando just other than by all the, turning all, up. All the soldiers that have been in all the other regiments. Yeah, I know, yeah, I know. <laughs> but, um, well, they had a, they, they could have gone in the same careers off as I did. <laughs> could have done the same 36 weeks of training I did. That's funny. Um, so, um, so you're absolutely right. You are, you, we are that sort of bastard um, stepchildren of the two. And we don't see ourselves as sailors and we don't see ourselves as soldiers. No. And, that, and it's a real... But, of course, the Navy... They would rather have two nice, big, shiny aircraft carriers than a, a, a commando unit. And so yeah. because we're part of the naval service, well, let's get rid of 4-2 commando. You don't really need them. Uh, and I believe that someone, probably the CG, the commandant general of the Royal Marines, went, well, hang on a minute, let's not be hasty. So what he did was re-roll 4-2 commando right. in um, protecting these nice, shiny new aircraft carriers, in providing men to go and rescue down pilots. And, 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 and they've... You know, board. Let's let let four two commando go and do the boarding um, things down in you know down in the Gulf. Let's go and you know drug smuggling, pirates, all this other stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that's four two commando's role. Okay. So they've kind of re-rolled from the traditional commando unit, but we still got four two commando. Oh, cool. Do you see what I mean? It's, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's this chameleon-like thing that yeah. the Marines have always done to Adapt stay relevant. And overcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you're 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 there for seven years at forty. Yep. Did you get picked up in that time? Uh, yes, yeah, so I was I was a corporal when I was drafted. Uh, yeah, so yeah, so I'd made it to corporal by then. And what happened next? Um, I went I went from there. So I'm from Deal, as we discussed earlier, um, and there was a Royal Marine barracks in Deal, and there has been for hundreds of years. The whole town, if you like, is built around the, the barracks. Um, and um, so I thought it'd be a good idea. I, I just met my wife or girlfriend at the time, we just got a house together. So I thought it'd be a good idea to get drafted to deal, have a bit of downtime. Um, and it turned out to be the worst thing I ever did in my life. It was, it was basically, um, we, we, I was the guard commander for, for you know, and, and all the guys that I had under me had all given up on the Marines. They all wanted to go outside. Mm-hmm. No one was interested. It's the hardest I had to work as, a, as an NCO to try and keep any sort of discipline or anything amongst these guys. So I didn't like it there at all. It was awful. Um, I spent a year with my new girlfriend, but it was just, it wasn't where I wanted to be in the end. No. Um, uh, and um, so while I was there, I, a few of my friends had gone to a thing called M Squadron. And M Squadron in those days was a, was a squadron of the SBS, um, but you weren't badged SBS operator. You, you, I mean, you didn't just go into it. There was a, there was a, a pretty cheeky selection process to do so. Um, but M Squadron would... Um, uh, 
as a whole. So there was, there was one, it was called Black Troop. So Black Troop was the non-badged SF guys. And then there were two other troops in the squadron, that which were badged SPS bar, uh, lads. Uh, and it's the maritime counterterrorism role. So if any ship, oil rig or anything like that is is taken, then M Squadron would be responsible for getting it back. And you might remember recently uh, there was that boat off Southampton a year or two ago. Yep. There is no such thing as the M Squadron, as I remember. It's all very different now, but that's the kind of thing uh, that we would have done. So, yeah, so I ended up doing that. I passed the selection for that, and then so there, I was a, a maritime counterterrorist team leader, um, Sliding. Still based as a Royal Marine. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. So you know, yeah, sliding down ropes, blowing doors off, and and it was it was everything I joined the Marines to do. You yeah. know, jumping out of aeroplanes, and it, it was it was. Had great. you been deployed overseas at this point? Uh, uh, during, oh, in, well, as in the Corps. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so Northern Ireland in 1988. I'd been to Iraq. So the first Gulf War, we ended up um, up in the mountains of Kurdistan. Um, so we watched the whole thing on TV. Uh, four or five commander had just come back from Northern Ireland. They were deployed immediately because they were good to go because they'd just come back from Northern Ireland. Uh, and I remember watching, so my brother was in four or five at the time and because uh, he, he joined the Marines as oh, well. okay. Um, and uh, we remember watching it one lunchtime and all the lads were there in T-shirts and, you know, jungle lightweights and all the rest of it. And then we had to turn to at two o'clock to go and draw our Arctic kit because we were going to northern Iraq. And everyone's like, really? Have you not been watching the news? The lads are in T-shirts. But we had to draw skis, snowshoes, uh, cam whites, the white stuff that we put over Really? Yeah, yeah. We had to draw all of that, and we had to take that with us to, to Iraq, going to the which was 30-something degrees at the time. It was, it was ridiculous. Um, and we spent, I'm going to say, about four months out there just getting the Kurds out of the mountains. It was just awful. It was just horrendous. They were... Um, they were very needy, you know, they were supposed to be starving. You'd give them a menu A ration and they'd, they'd say, well, have you got any menu B? I don't like menu A. And you're just mm. like, well, you're not that hungry, are you? You know, and all this. Uh, and it was a real eye-opener into a different culture. I always remember there was a field hospital there um, and there was a constant flow. A lot of these people had stood on mines, you know, that the Iraqis had just just kicked out of the back of kicked out the back of helicopters there was no mark you know a lot of these people kids who stood on mines or picked something up so they've got missing arms missing legs mm. uh it was quite bad and and but there was a pecking order so if there was an old man with a torn fingernail he'd be at the front of the queue then it would be the boys then it would be the women the adult women and then the little girl who stood on a landmine would be at the back of the queue uh, and that's, that was their culture. That's what they do. So we would always try and go and get the little get obviously. going. But it made you quite hard towards it. And I do remember one time they would then come, they would come, and I don't blame them for this. They would come up and sort of make a story up about how somebody was injured and we, we should let them in and all the rest of it. And, and in the end, we got quite hard to that and, and didn't believe a word they were saying. I remember one night this fellow came up and he said, look, my, my daughter's just fallen off a truck. And these, these things are massive. She'd fallen off, smashed herself up. And I was like, yeah, you're all right, mate. You know, we're, we're open at six in the morning, whatever it was. Anyway, at six in the morning, like the, the daylight come up and there was this little girl mm. dead oh. uh, and she died. And, and you know, it was, it was, uh, yeah. It's it, that, yeah, and there's something that sits with you, but. But on the upside, I did help deliver a baby girl. There you go. So one in, one out. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was lovely. And I got a picture of me holding this baby girl and I often wonder what ever happened to her. Yeah, yeah, this was, I this was in 1991, so I, I can't even do the maths. Thirty something years ago, mm. um, you know, I wonder how she's doing now. She's still around. It's funny because you do become doing what you've done and 
to a lesser degree what I've done, very pragmatic about certain yeah. things in life. And, you know, you deal with things in a different way. My dad, when he was deployed, to, he was in Borneo. Right. And um, he ended up giving blood directly to a woman who's hemorrhaged because he's got an unusual blood group. Right. And he gave her blood directly from one table to another. Wow. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah. But then, you know, some of the guys have been from his troop have been killed, you know, all those sorts. Of, so you just... Yeah. I know, yeah, you've got to take it yeah. one day at a time. And I don't think you can... You, you can't dwell on these things. No. You know, I, I haven't thought about that little girl since just now. Sorry, mate. No, 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 no. I don't mean it, I don't mean it like that. But I, it's just something that happened. Do you know what I mean? It's, 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 yeah. and that, that's going to sound horrible. It's a little girl's life. No. But, but it was just, you know, it was just how it was. And it was, and I kind of blamed the other people who told us lies. Uh, you know, the, the, it's, it's that, um, the people uh, crying wolf. Crying wolf. Yeah. And, and it was that. I, did I cost that girl a life? Yes, you could argue I absolutely did, but I would blame the people who cried wolf all those nights, all yeah. those nights and weeks that we were there. And you're dealing with a different type of vulnerability as well. Yeah. As a as a as a serving soldier, you know, serving marine, you've got vulnerabilities around your own group of people. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a whole load of load of things that you have to to mitigate the risk, which is what you were doing. That's yeah. what you know. That's yeah, part yeah. and parcel of yeah. it, mitigating the risk. So you've done Iraq. You're 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 up in the mountains in your in your snow kit. <laughs> well, we, we we actually left it. We we got there and we left it in situ. Did you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We didn't. We didn't. You didn't. Uh, you got it. backloaded. Yeah. No, <laughs> maybe we need it. It was, it was roasting up. But I did meet my brother. Um, so my brother was in four five, and when we arrived, we went into Syria first. It was there was if if you look at a map, you've got Iraq, Turkey, and Syria, yes. and they all meet. Uh, uh, those three countries meet at a certain point. I think it was it was either Syria or Turkey that we were in. I can't remember which, but we were in a little tented camp before we went, then went forward into the mountains. Uh, and there was my brother. So that was cool. So we got a nice oh, picture brilliant. of us having a cup of tea outside my little sort of bivouac. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, that was cool. And then the, ne the next time I saw him, I was in a different camp to him eventually. And then got on a helicopter. They they were flying home because they'd just come back from Northern Ireland. So they were they were there, take the, you know, get the ground ready and all the rest of it. And then we were sort of occupying it for, for, for the long time. When I got off his helicopter, I looked. I, I was ill, and I had um, cholera. But oh a minor, my God. A, a lot of us caught a minor sort of dose of cholera, and uh, I was so skinny. Again, I've got a photograph of it somewhere. I was so skinny, and I remember as I was walking towards my brother to say hello, I just didn't care that it was my brother, uh, and I soiled myself. And he he handed me a pair of his PT shorts, which oh. I've still got to this day. That I, that I, I said, "Do you want them back?" He's like, "No, I don't." <laughs> <laughs> but I remember there was when we finally ended up where we were so we were we were in little uh, my section I was a corporal we had a little we, we had arctic tents which were actually all right for this situation so we had these arctic tents um and there was just beyond where our our position was there was the the sort of the camp toilet which was a trench with some uh, with some plywood you know over the top nice and I it, almost daily you'd see some bloke just mega bedraggled base, barely able to walk heading towards this buddy hole Literally, in the ground yeah. and then and then they'd stop pause and then turn around and walk back the other way too late because it's been too late <laughs> and then what i remember as well it rained really bad one particular week really really bad and a couple of lads were sat because they're just bits of plywood over a hole yeah with some holes cutting yeah and you know there's no privacy you just sat there with all the other lads chatting away you know yeah 
And uh, because the, the plywood had got so wet, oh. these lads had sat on this thing and it had given way. So they've gone straight into it. But you can imagine it's oh. toppers with cholera. Oh, no. Absolutely. Toppers. So I think, if I remember rightly, they were Kazavaks immediately yeah, I'll bet. back to the UK. There's no way could they have stayed there just to make sure that they weren't going to die of something. Mm. You know, yeah. Can you imagine that, though? Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, dear. Horrific. How long were you out there for? I reckon it was about four months. And then back to the UK from there? Yeah. Uh, I don't remember what we did straight after that. I don't think it was long after that that I left then to go to go uh, to Paul. Must and that, and that, was the, that was the combined SBS yeah. rumour in your part of the, the counter-terrorism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long were you were there? I think I did two and a half years there. Um, loved every minute of it. It was just so good. It was, just, it was literally everything I joined the Royal Marines to do. It was, you know, if you're a little boy and you're imagining the things you want to do... Yeah. That's, that was the job I, I was Warlord doing. Yeah, as a kid, I, I was yeah. literally blowing doors off. We were running around with gas masks on and just, do you know what I mean? It was it was chucking stun grenades about the place and it was just brilliant. Sliding out of helicopters, yeah. parachuting out of aeroplanes. It was brilliant. We were fit. I've never been so fit in my life. We were supremely fit. Um, so that's all we did. We, we we played very hard. We did a lot of uh, a lot of fizz, as we call it in the Marines. So yeah. we were monster, fizz monsters. Yeah. Um, yeah. And where did you do your para training? Where, where would you have gone for that? Was it uh, Bryce Norton? Bryce. Yeah, but I did. I did that before I went to Paul. So I, um, <laughs> I was lying on my bed one Friday morning, Friday afternoon. The week had finished, and one of the corporals came in. This is 1988, so I think we just got back from Ireland. In fact, no, it's before we went to Ireland in 1988, and it was the old, uh, it's the old, uh, who, who wants a para course? And everyone's like, Yeah, all right, mate. You know, because no one gets a para course just like that. And I went, I'll do it thinking I was probably going to get laughed out of the room. And he went, right, uh, you you be in Bryce Norton on Monday, whatever it was, I can't remember. So, and, and I was like that to all the other lads. And they were like, oh, my God. So, yeah, so I went and did a para course. Um, and again, it was, yeah, it's brilliant. In fact, I was on the course where the first, at that time, the first Royal Marine had refused to jump. And that never happened up to then. And it was... Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, it was a little bit... Um, I, I remember him, he... Uh, and again, this isn't very PC. His parent, I think he's... One of his parents had dropped him in a boiling hot bath. Oh, so he was very, very badly scarred, got mm. very badly burnt when he was when he was a baby. So we called him Nicky Lauder. That was his, you'll remember from the for, for how Nicky Lauder looked. And, and that's a terrible thing to say. That's, again. But it's a different, it, different It was era. the 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, um, you're supposed to do a balloon jump first. Is an old looks like a barrage balloon with yeah. a basket. There's an old wicker basket. Classic. Four of you get in it. There's the there's the instructor there, and it leans very slightly forward like that. And that's what that's what you're supposed to do your first jump out of. But there was something wrong with it, so we, we did our first jump out of an aeroplane. Right. Brilliant. So we jumped out of an aeroplane, we landed, and then we did our balloon jump. So this guy, and I can't remember his name. I can't remember what his name was. So he'd done that jump out of an aeroplane, but the balloon is so different because in an aeroplane, it's noisy. Everybody else is moving, yeah. you know, and, and you just, even if you don't want to do it, you're just caught up in it and you yeah, find yeah. yourself jumping yeah, out yeah. the plane. And so it's a lot easier, I think. Whereas in the balloon, it's deathly silent. Excuse me. It's probably no bigger than this table, the basket, if you can imagine that sort of area. Right. But it's deathly silent as this balloon just gets winched up and winched up. So you've got time to think because it's not a normal thing to do, no. jumping out of things like that. And it's leaning forward and there's all there is, is just a thin bar, probably as thick as your finger, a thin bar across you in oblivion and he, he you're hooked up onto this thing and he, he pulls the bar across and I remember being 
like that standing back, being scared to fall out, yeah. which is ridiculous. But that's a normal thing. Anyway, um, so I think I jumped, we, we did our jump, and it was hideous because out of a plane, there's a slipstream which pulls you backwards. So your parachute opens as you move backwards. Yes. But out of a balloon, you jump, you fall straight down. And that's horrendous because your parachute seems to take forever to open. It's just awful. So anyway, we'd all done that and we were all messing about doing what we were doing. And then this balloon went up and we could hear a lot of shouting. And then this balloon come down and then it went up again. <laughs> and only three lads jumped out of it. And we were like, what's going on there? And it, and, and interesting, we never saw that bloke again. No. Never saw him <laughs> because he, it's, a, it's a morale thing. Because it, oh. it can spread. Oh, of course, yeah. You know, someone's like, oh, he didn't jump. Why well, yeah, didn't no. jump? What's going on? And that, no, no, that's no. a morale thing. So they literally, they took the balloon down. So he was the first to go, refused, absolutely refused to go. Because when you're told to jump, that's an order. Yeah. So you're disobeying yeah. an order. Yeah. And um, they took it down. And when we got back to camp that night, he's, he was gone. All his bedding was gone. Yeah. You know, he, he was just taken away. And it, and it follows that if you, you know, if you're in, in theatre... And you're told to fix bayonets or whatever, and yeah. you don't fix bayonets. Yeah. It's not only your life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you you, you know yeah. you've got to you've got to do these things. It's what you sign up for. Yeah. So you, you've done your P company. You've got no. Off. We don't do P company. You don't do. P so company. the Marines don't do P company. Right. Um, we're the only ones who don't because our commando tests is P company enough, and that's right. that's the whole thing with the Marines in Paris. Ah. See, well, you don't do P company, so they're paratroopers. We were parachutists, which I think is fair. That's a totally yeah. fair one. I yeah. wasn't a paratrooper. I was a commando. Yeah. But I was a commando that parachuted. See, I learned something new yeah. every day. And, and of course, when, we, when we're at Paul, we used to jump into the sea. Brilliant. Because hitting the ground is the, is the worst bit of parachuting. Whereas jumping out into the sea, it's a great laugh. Yeah, I'm sure. It, I, I was talking to a neighbor. It has its own dangers. Oh, of course it does. But, uh, Depends what sea you're jumping into as well. And also, I know a lad whose parachute landed on top of him and it took him under. Mm. And, it, and it was a, it was he Scary. made that by the skin of his teeth yeah. so that was dragging him because of course you've got this massive canopy on top of him he's in the sea he can't get out I was talking to a Navy SEAL and they, they just love it and they'll jump into cold water yeah. and warm water they've got yeah. sharks and oh that's it, yeah. no thanks no, it's, it's, it's right. I don't mind jumping in the sea no. it's good fun when you've when you've concluded your time at Paul where did you go to then did you get promoted or what was no it? I was still a corporal um so I then went to 4-2 Commando. And when I joined, so I, my branch in the Corps was anti-tanks. So I was an anti-tanker. Um, but when I went back to 4-2 Commando, because I'd come from Paul, they didn't know I was an anti-tanker and I didn't, let them, I didn't let on. So I ended up in M Company, which is a rifle company. So I really enjoyed that. So I was a rifle section commander now right. uh, in M Company. And then um, we did another tour of Ireland. So I went to Fork Hill. Uh, in South Omar, and we also went to Montserrat. You might remember the um, the volcano that erupted yeah. on Montserrat. So we got sent out there. It's brilliant. Um, we got sent out to Montserrat at short notice, landed in Antigua, then flew on to Montserrat. And the reason being, most of Montserrat, you, you, you need a few quid to live in Montserrat, as you yeah. can imagine. And um, so most of the people on the island had been evacuated because, I mean, this, this volcano was, was puckergen, yeah. spewing all sorts of that, that stuff out of it. Um and so we went and got sworn in as police officers. And we've never been unsworn in. So as far as I'm aware, so, I'm still a police officer a police in Montserrat. Officer um, but we all, yeah, we all fell in. We all, we all and the uh, police chief came around and we all had to put our hands up, swear on the Bible 
and we were sworn in as police officers because, of course, we then they were worried about looting yes. and, and all the other stuff. Yes. So, and then we lived in this big, this massive mansion that somebody had given up to us. It was a whole company of Royal Marines, and they had two housekeepers. Of course, these two lads couldn't believe their luck that there was a company of Royal Marines, young, fit lads who, who weren't interested in wearing anything else but like, like a sock while they were sunbathing. They were in their element. They were really, really <laughs> nice lads, actually. And they really looked after everybody, obviously. Um, and we were also told, right, we can give you rations, but we get it's a little bit of struggle getting into it. Or we can give you 50 quid a day, subsidence, <laughs> subsidence uh, and you can go down the local noodle shack and, and get some chicken noodles in. And everyone's like, mm, Let me think we'll go that. 50 quid a day, spend, spend £3.50 on noodles and pocket the rest of the money. Mm. So, yeah, so we had a lot of money stowed away for that. For that thing but the um one of the things we did there was me the sergeant major i don't know why it was me but there was me the sergeant major and the company commander and a scientist went up this bloody mountain when it was erupting and the reason we had to go up is because the scientists they have a baked bean tin size instrument and by putting this instrument on a piece of rock they fire a laser beam at it and if they can detect the slightest movement in the rock, which which suggests it's about to explode. Well, I never. I'm probably not explaining that very well, but that, that's how it. I understood yeah, yeah. it. So anyway, but some some idiot had to go up the mountain. In fact, a scientist didn't come up with this because he weren't that stupid. So it was me, the company commander, the sergeant major, and a local policeman, one of the local lads who was, who was a policeman. So us four trudged up this bloody mountain. We were waist deep in mud and ash. Oh there my was life. stuff kick, you know, flying up in the air and all the rest of it. Oh my god! It was it was, and you're going through a jungle as well. So it's, I can't remember how long it took. But it was a long, long trek up there. We put this baked beans in roughly where the scientists said, and this 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 took the best part of I don't know twelve, fifteen hours, whatever it was. We got back down, and he's like, "No, I can't see it." But as we're coming down, the company commander's saying, "Right, this is too dangerous. No one's going up here again. This is this is ridiculous. This this is going to get someone killed." So when the scientist said, "Can't see it," Corporal Mary. You know the way. Can you take uh, some people up there tomorrow? So they weren't going to do it. So I took up this other young officer who was really keen to go up. I can't remember who else. And we went back up um, and we found the baked bean tin, but we'd we'd gone up with a couple of tins of paint. So we literally threw these big uh, paint tins all over this rock so they could see this. There was a lock on so they could find this bean tin. Uh, I'm sure we painted a commando dagger with 4-2 commandos. Probably still there. Probably is. Well, unless it... It blew up, yeah. But, but yeah, uh, so so no one's gone up this mountain. It's too dangerous. But the scientists couldn't see his thing, so I had to go up the next day. But uh, yeah, that was quite an experience. Um, and then I came home from that. We, <laughs> the RAF being the RAF, we 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 flew from Montserrat to um, Antigua, and then from Antigua we landed in Washington. Uh, and Kel surprise the RAF had run out of hours. So so we had to stay the night in Washington. Of course surprise. There's always, yeah. there's always something like that with the RAF. And um, again, we, we were just dressed as we were in our jungle lightweights, probably not that clean. And we were, we were told, you're staying in a hotel at the local at Dulles Airport. Um, yeah. And, it's uh, a big well, airport. Yeah, well, it, it is, yeah. And it was a nice hotel. But what was funny was that there was a wedding on in this hotel. <laughs> And uh, there was a couple of young American soldiers there who were in their uniform and obviously thought, yeah, we, you know, all the ladies are going to be uh, going to be loving this. And then again, a company of Royal Marines turn up oh with, with the accent. Yeah. And of course, these two young American soldiers didn't get a look in. And all this, the lads were just it's unbelievable. It's all over the place. So we had a great night in there. Um, and then the next day, 
we're sat on the plane, RAF VC-10 or whatever it is. Everyone's slightly hungover. Spike's working on it? No, I, I, would, no, I wouldn't have thought so. <laughs> well, maybe it was, I don't know. And um, I remember the, 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 the captain of uh, the plane came on the, on the uh, tunnel. He said, uh, good, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got 5,000 miles to go. Uh, it's dark and we're in sunglasses. And off he went straight down the runway, the old Blues Brothers thing. It was brilliant. <laughs> Everyone was like, Woo. really funny. So he'd given us a night in Washington and he, he turned out he's quite funny. Um, yeah, so we got home from that and then I went straight on a sniper's course. I went and did my sniper's course straight after that. Where did you have to go for that? That's back at Commando Training Centre. Um, yeah. And, and you have to train for all eventualities, don't you, on a sniper course or is that...? The sniper course in the Marines is considered to be the most difficult course to pass. If you wear a sniper's badge on your uniform, you will get respect from, from people do respect that mm. no matter what bat, you know, what, what their trade or whatever their speciality is in the Marines. If you're a sniper, that is a respected thing. And I remember when I was a Sergeant Major, you know, my Marines would say I had my sniper's badges on and you could see him nudging you going, oh, the Sergeant Major's a sniper. Mm. That, because being a sniper is the, is, the, is the pinnacle of being a soldier. You have to be such a good soldier Sounds like I'm blowing smoke up my own backside. I don't mean it mean to be, but you, no, I get, I it, do get it. It is the absolute pinnacle of soldiering. You know, you become invisible. Your your trade craft, your your field craft is exceptional. And it has to be, mm. else you'll be seen. Your mat reading is second to none. Your eyesight, your observation skills. It's not just about shooting. Shoot, shooting is almost the tiniest bit of the course. Yeah. Actually, it's all those other skills. Your, your camouflage and concealment. Your movement while camouflaged and concealed. The patience. The the all those things that you need to be a sniper. It's not just about shooting. Yeah. You know, you need to get into that position and then shoot. Uh, and and you could be deployed for some time while you're undertaking that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So I, and, and I was lucky because I was a corporal and corporals don't do snipers courses. But a good friend of mine who, was, who I worked with at Paul, he was a corporal at Paul. He'd suddenly become, oh, not suddenly, but he, he'd now become the training officer oh, in right. 4-2 Commando. So my mate was now the training officer. And he said to me, do you want to do a snipers course? And I was like, yeah, all right, mate. Yeah, I'd love to. So that's how I got on the snipers course. Again, just through someone I knew. But but yeah, so I did that. And that's a, that's a really, really tough course. Um, there's a lot of young Marines. There's people from the SBS come and do it. Police officers used to, I don't know if they still do, but police officers used to come and do the Royal Marines right. course, not because they necessarily needed some of the skills, but it was considered to be the, the most um, the most difficult course to pass. You know, and there's a real close relationship with the US Scout Snipers, uh, the US Marine Corps, yeah. who were absolutely amazing at shooting. So there's a lot of cross cross um, training with, with those guys as well. Um, and I think that's probably one of my proudest moments one of them, my parents' yeah, yeah. One, of, one of the greatest sense of achievement was passing that, and I came top of that course as well. I, I got a marksman pass, so you can you can have a pass or a marksman pass. And which what, meant, does it, what does the badge look like when you? When it's you, a set of cross rifles, cross rifles uh, with an S in, in between them. Um, yeah, so that was that was good. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. Did you ever get deployed? Um, yeah, yes and no. So I I ended up in Africa, um, and. Although I was a sergeant, I was the only sniper right, in, okay. in the group that we had. So, so more of an observation role rather than than actually taking anyone out with with the, with the rifle. Okay. So, so yes, but not in the true sense of the word. No. Um, so where, where did it, so you you're now ready for promotion to a sergeant or how did it? Yeah. Did it? Yeah. So uh, I think I was in four two still. Yeah, I must have been in 4-2. Yeah, so I, I did my senior command course while I was in 4-2 commando. 
Um, and so, yeah, so, um, so I was now sergeant. And you get picked up on confidentials, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, so you have to... Um, Again, it, it's changed completely now, but there was a thing called a, a 365A, which you got every six months. Right. Uh, and every six months, it was, a, it was an appraisal written about you. And if you if you get in high Bs or As, then you're clearly ready for the next... And, and it goes on the write-up as well. It's not just the grade, but, no. but yeah, um, you then, you, you've done enough, if you like, to, to, to go on. And I spent six years in each rank. So I was six years a Marine, six years a Corporal, six years as a Sergeant. So it was every six years I seemed to find my stride in each rank and, and move forward. Um, so yeah, so there was a sergeant. Um, so what did I do as a sergeant? I think it was another Norway came into the uh, equation. Deployed to Africa, as I said. Um, so we we became the Royal Marines Protection Party, which is what four two commando now do. I said about them doing yep. all the boardings and all the rest of it. So it's kind of a new thing that they that they came up with. I think at the time, so this would be nineteen ninety seven, um, and we the first thing we were called for was um, we had to go to Albania, a bit topical in the news at the moment. Mm. There was something going on in Albania, I can't remember what it was. Uh, so they needed some sort of British presence. A, a, a ship was rushed down there. So we um, we went to work as normal that day, and then we got told all our kit had to be ready. We are deploying to Albania literally in a couple of hours. Um, six helicopters arrived at 4-2 Commando. My wife was pregnant with my son at the time, so I had time to nip home and say, listen, just going to just shoot off out of the country for a little bit, but it'll be all right. I'll be back before he's born. Um, six helicopters arrived. Um, we then flew to Bryce Norton. Those six helicopters landed next to a VC-10. We got on the VC-10 and off we went and we flew directly to, I'm going to say Croatia, or it might have been or whatever Yugoslavia was at the time, something like that. Uh, we landed on the Adriatic. Yeah. Uh, and then from there... Another um, load of Sea King. In fact, I think it was, I can't remember if it was, I can't remember how many Sea Kings, but they then, so it's literally boom, boom, boom onto each aircraft. Yeah. They picked us up and they flew us out to HMS Exeter, I think it was. And what an incredible feat of flying. So this ship was steaming down the Adriatic to get onto, onto station. So it wasn't slowing down. And these, these pilots, if you imagine this is the deck of the ship, they were putting, uh, it, was, it would have been the port wheel, they were hovering, so this ship's moving that way. They would put the port wheel on the deck, and we were jumping out with, you know, and the helicopter was holding. So it was an amazing bit of flying, absolutely. And wow. it's at night as well; it's dark. So, um, so that's how we got onto the ship, and then, uh, yeah, and off we went, uh, and we sat. Usual thing: hurry up and wait. It's always, yeah, yeah. It's always on those, isn't it? So we did a bit of training, and um, funny story. Well, two things actually happened on there. Firstly. Um, a young sailor was running around looking all flustered. And I said, you're right, mate. He said, yeah, I've got a signal for your officer. And I went, well, is there anything I can help with? He, sa- he said, well, he said, one of your lads has just had a baby. Um, he said, but, you know, and I went, and I'm thinking to myself, hang on a minute, none of my lads have got pregnant wives. What's the name on that? He said, oh, it's for Sergeant Mary. And I was like, oh, Andy. Oh, that's me. So that's how, that's how I found out my son had been born. Oh, cool. And, and he went, I can't tell you. He said, I've got to give this, because the rules oh, are, no. you've got to give a signal to an officer. Yeah. So I said, well, he's, I told him where he was anyway. He said, please, please don't let on you know. Oh, bless him. So I then had to go in front of my officer. He said, I've got some great news. And I went, oh, amazing. <laughs> no, I'd already known for 20 minutes. Um, so yeah, so that's how I found out my son was born. The other thing that happened on that trip, there was a sailor on uh, the, 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 that all my Marines had noticed down in the mess deck who had a, 
one of those scary tigers, you know, with the, with the red with the <laughs> yeah. red claws like yeah. that tattooed yeah. on his arm. But underneath it, you could see the words Royal Navy Commando. Now, this bloke wouldn't be able to spell Commando, never mind anything else. So they, they knew he, that was just something he had, and he obviously had it covered up with this stupid tiger thing. So they used to rib him a little bit. So then we decided we'd get this bloke on, the, on a bike. So everyone from the captain down to the Chinese laundry lads were in on this on this thing. He's the only one on the ship who didn't know. So what we did, they made a pipe saying that, uh, right, basically it's all kicking off ashore. Can all Royal Marines muster in the, in the, in the hangar, which is where we were supposed to go, um, to, to go ashore and do what we were there to do. So, okay, so we're, we all, and we all knew this was happening. So we've all crashed out. All the lads are crashing out, you know, jumping about, getting a kit on, all the rest of it. Five minutes later, there's another pipe. Will any military trained member of the ship's company please report to the, uh, to the flight deck? And, and all the lads in his mess knew this was Andy. He said, go on, mate, you, you was a commando, go and get... And, and he's going, but, 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 but. And he's like, oh, shut up, shut up. And they basically pushed, you know, just got him before he could sort of say no or whatever. As he's come in the, uh, into the flight deck, one of my Marines is lying there pretending he's broken his arm. So we're treating his arm. And one of the things we did at the time was we'd put a, a, um, you know, a line into our arms already. So we'd have a line in our arms with a bandage over it. So if anyone got injured... Really? You had a cannula already Yeah, there was, there was already something... To, to put, you know, it's just something we just, we thought we'd try. So so we sat him down, chucked a cannula in his arm. He's going, bye, 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 bye. shut up, shut up, just do it, do it. So I've now got a set of body armour and I'm going, right, uh, you, as, you as a commander, you'll know how all this works. And I, and I literally dropped a set of body armour over the top of him. <laughs> then I dropped a 94 anti-tank rocket system over the top of him. And I'm going, right, there are tanks there, mate. You might need this, but you'll remember your training. Don't worry, we'll, we'll talk you through it. Then I chucked a GPMG over his, <laughs> over his thing, a, a general purpose machine gun, big heavy machine gun, load of ammunition. And just started pushing him towards the back of the, the flight deck. And he's got, I'm like, shut up, shut up. You just go and go and get on. And he's running around. He, oh, and we ran him round the side of the ship, down the port side of the ship. And we had a scramble net and our boats were already in the water. So he's now clinging on for dear life, going down this scramble net in the middle of the Adriatic Sea. And I'm shouting at him, going, don't you drop that kit. We need that kit. You know, all this. He's got in the boat. And as he's got in the boat, he's got his back to the ship, which is relevant. The boat then speeds off as if it's going ashore and it's gone round the bow of the ship so and then down the starboard side so he's now facing the ship right and every member of the ship's company was up there <laughs> like this, just cheering him and all this and he, just, and he oh. realized at that moment that it was a big bite so oh, uh, yeah this poor this poor kid i hope he was all right after that but i'm sure he was yeah it's character but, building you know yeah, it was. We, we need to i think we we really do need to build people's characters because I don't know where it's all going to go if we don't you, you know you do need that, that that's don't have, go getting commando tattoos oh, no, well that, but that's the thing you know the water mitty and I don't I'm not saying for one minute it's no, a water no, no. mitty I'm not suggesting but that, they're but, out there but they are out there we see you know yeah. the, I, I I saw one over on Remembrance Re- Weekend every Remembrance Weekend you'll see a, and a there's wall. some bloaties that's got more medals than Kenny ever yeah yeah and they always wear their granddads on the other side oh yeah and there's, I don't think that's necessarily to say, well, these are my granddad's medals, because they want people to think that they're their medals. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, because not everyone realises that you, you that wear you them, wear them like that. Yeah, on the opposite side. Yeah, so, I, yeah, I don't. Um, so you, you've done the Adriatic, you've, you've, you've come back. Yeah. What deployments did you have thereafter? I mean, you, you, you were in Africa, but was that... Oh, yeah, so, yeah, so, so we've done the RMPP. So when we got back from that... Um, Similar situation, there was something going off in Congo. So it used to be called Cong- uh, Zaire, sorry. It used to be called Zaire. I think it's called, the, it's, Those, I think it's called Congo now. Yeah. Uh, and then you had the Democratic Republic of Congo yeah. on the other side of the, uh, the River yeah. Congo, 
uh, in the middle. So Kinshasa uh, is the capital. So we went to Brazzaville, which is the capital of the Congo. And what it was, you might remember, there's a bloke called Laurent Kabila, who was sweeping all the way through Zaire, Af- one of Africa's biggest countries, famously in Wellington boots. Yeah. And they were going to take over Zaire. Um, so that wasn't really our problem. But what was our problem was that in Brazzaville, uh, sorry, in, in Kinshasa, the capital of Zaire, um, was a, a British um, embassy. Uh, and of course, there were diplomats in there. Oh, right. And so we didn't know how these marauding African loonies in wellies were going to behave no. around things like that. So we, were, we went there ostensibly to, uh, to look after, you know, to protect them and to come up with a plan to evacuate them should we have needed to. Uh, so we spent four and a half, five months. So I'd, I'd, so I'd come home from the Adriatic, met my son when he was three days old. Hello, mate. Three days later, 10 days later, uh, sorry, a week later. So he's now 10 days old. We've now deployed on this one. And it was a bit of a, when you're coming home, don't know. No. So anyway, so we're out there um, and we did a lot of training. We come up with some great plans. Um, we had f- two hovercraft, four landing craft, and that's what we were going to use to go and to go out and we, we, we built mock-ups of the embassy on a sandbar and every night we'd go out and we'd rehearse and, you know, what happens if this happens, what happens if our action's on. We, we rehearsed it down to the last sort of thing. Um, then the FOB, which is where uh, Ford Operating Base, which is where all the landing craft and that were, or, or the, the rigid raiders, not landing craft, I'm sorry, uh, and hovercraft, they came under fire one night. So we went running down there to, to, to obviously help them, but it turns out that it was it was a couple of drunken uh, Congolese Marines having an argument oh. and just started bloody shooting at each other. <coughs> oh, so, of course, God. all the rounds were landing in amongst the hovercraft, so they weren't under attack per se. No. But we didn't know that when we got there. But anyway, so that that was that. Uh, and this went on for months and months and months, three or four months. And then we sort of got wind that it was good because you could, you, could, you could almost hear and feel the, the step change in the way everybody was. You could this big army was coming into to the now Kinshasa, as you might remember, is where uh, Muhammad Ali yeah, had his right. rumble in the jungle. Jungle, yeah, yeah. And the stadium where that took place was our ERV. So had we gone across there, we were then going to get picked up by helicopter from that. That was our plan, or that was our ERV. Our, our plan was to come back across in the boats with the embassy staff. But right. should it all go wrong, we'd have had to fight our way through the town to this place to be picked up uh, and go back. Uh, so it smacked to me of a bit of a suicide mission, actually. It was, it, it was a little, you know, big city, people running around everywhere and we're fighting our way through it to get... Mm. It, was, it was a little bit, um, you know, ropey to and say. And I assume that the, the non-essential staff in the embassy had already come back to the UK. So you're left with the ambassador and the... Ambassador and staff. There was a team of RMP bodyguards over there as yeah. well, which, which, you know, um, which kind of caused a bit of a problem for us later and I'll explain that as I go. Um, so I remember, and this this is that role as a sniper, but for observation rather. I had, although I had my rifle, it was really for, for observation. Yeah. So we were watching. It was one of the most surreal things I've ever seen. We watched this with war, for want of a better word, sweeping from right to left as we were looking through Kinshasa, and you could see all the gunfights breaking out, and it would just move slowly, slowly, slowly through the city, and you'd see, you know, anti-aircraft fire going, but in the in the ground roll, and it was just a cacophony of sound and light. And we were sat 600 metres away thinking, oh, Christ, we've got to go over there in a minute and get these people out. Mm. Um, and then so they, got, they, they got through to say, right, okay, no, we're all right, we're safe, we don't need you to go across. So that was, that was, that was cool. So the, the operation was over, you know. It's, it, but it was a bit weird to see the city as it came in, in daylight, all the smoke and everything. Like that. that city had just been overrun. Yeah. And it was just a weird feeling to see that. Um, and then the... 
I don't know. In fact, it was the next day. So our job over there was finished. So we were up, we our, we had all our kit up at an airport. So the local airport, um, which it looked like, well, it was a, the military part of the airport. But this airport, this still had Air France seven four sevens landing in it. This it was a proper airfield. And every day we'd go up there, get our kit, and in the night we'd go out and do our stuff. And then we'd go, we we were staying in a hotel in town, which is which is all right. Um, but we'd be like six to a room in a double room. So I slept that whole time with another lad in a double bed. Yeah. And the rest of the lads, you know, with a very firm line between us, obviously. Yeah. And then the rest of the lads in my section were, were on camp beds around it. So when I say we're in a hotel, it wasn't, no. you, you know. Uh, but we did have a swimming pool. So that's what we do during the day and at night time we do our training. But we had this thing where, because all squaddies get bored, of, of the, 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 so so we just uh, we had this non-emotional crossing of the runway so as you came up to cross this runway and I've just said there were Air France 747s oh. not not as much as Heathrow but they no, would no. land on there yeah. you weren't allowed to look left and right when you were driving your car oh my you God. just had to go straight for it because otherwise you had to get a crate in or something like that if you looked so it was just non-emotional straight across the runway <laughs> a bunch of idiots <laughs> Obviously, nothing untoward happened. I think we'd have read um, about that one if it had. Yeah, exactly. Well, there was a crash uh, at some point. Um, I th- we, we, we were aware that something had happened. And what it was, there's an Air Angola twin turboprop plane or something. I hadn't quite made it to the end of the runway. Oh. And just stoved in. It stoved in. It was full of passengers. So we all went to help. This plane is on the ground. It, it crashed. And it's on fire. We've got there. The local... Trumpton, for want of a better word, because that's exactly what they look like, mm. the, those funny little helmets, and, and the fire engine wasn't much better. Um, they were all standing with their arms around each other getting selfies and photographs because mm, they'd never yeah. been to a plane on fire before. Oh, no. Put the fire out first, lads. Yeah. Then get the get your pictures. But no, there's, 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 there's the, the co-pilot was hanging out the window dead. He was, he, you know, um, and there were, pass- there, there were people, the locals had seen an opportunity. So if there was a body in the way, they'd drag a body out to nick stuff. And all the all the um, all the um, the luggage, it was all nicked. Oh. It was unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it. So we did what we could, which wasn't very much. The next day, if you went up there with a metal detector, you wouldn't have found a single washer on the site of that plane really? crash. It had been stripped, absolutely stripped. And for the rest of the time we were there, you drive through the town, there'd be a set of airline seats outside someone's house, or a wing used as a as a porch over someone's house. It was unbelievable, incredible, unbelievable. No regard whatsoever for human life it was just I've never seen anything like it anyway so the next day we were up at this airfield packing all our stuff away um, and a couple of young marines had been dispatched down to the riverfront because what we'd done we'd lent the RMPs some uh, armour piercing ammunition and some comms so they could speak to us yep. and obviously they needed a little bit more yeah, armour piercing ammunition is a little bit more cheeky than, than yeah, yeah. ammunition as you can imagine so anyway so they were returning it back to us so that we could pack it up and go home and no one really knows why or what happened, but there was a there was some sort of altercation, and they radioed back to where we all were. We, I was just in a pair of flip flop shorts, t shirt. The war was over. We're going home. Um, we need help. This, the, you know, it's it's uh, the people are trying to take these diplomatic bags. So that, all that stuff came over in a diplomatic bag, right? And but was bought over by an ambassador. Um, the, the British ambassador bought this stuff over. Yeah. So. There's a, there's a big crowd forming around these two young Marines. They're trying to take the bags off them. So they've called for help. So we, right, what have we got? We, uh, we had three pistols. There's the only weapons we, we hadn't stowed away was three pistols. Mm. We didn't think, because we'd been there. We, these people knew us. They, you know, everyone knew who we were, or so we thought. So we've all gone uh, charging down there. I've, I'm in the lead car. 
Um, there's four of us in this car. Three of us got pistols. So I started, my plan was to stop short of where this was going on, assess the situation before, you know, don't just go barging straight in there. But they'd given a slightly, and, and I don't blame them, they, they, they were under a lot of pressure. They gave a slightly incorrect position. So we ended up kind of amongst it. So, I, and it was a big, big crowd, big crowd. And this wasn't that long after Somalia, you know. Yep. So, so that was the sort of the thing in my head. So I've got out of the car, but I didn't leave the car. So I, I've got the door in front of me so that I can get in the car quickly if I need to. I've got my pistol in my pocket, in my shorts pocket. And there's a guy constantly trying to, he's, he's trying to grab me. He's trying to grab my pistol. So I'm pushing him away, pushing him away, watching what's going on. They then drive away. The car, the, the car's just driven away. Okay, everything, that, that all seems groovy. I've got back in the car to this bloke. Uh, turns out he was an undercover policeman in the end. But anyway, so we we, we drive down the seafront. We go to um, the local police station where um, an Eng- a, a French-speaking Gurkha officer, so British soldier, but mm. Gurkha officer, he, um, he went into the police station, I presume, to have a discussion, therefore, to, to retrieve this bag because they'd taken the bag inside the police right. station. Um, he come running out, don't know why. He gets in the car, speeds off. So we were like, okay, follow that car. So off we went. <laughs> and then there was a there was a, a Congolese policeman stood in the front, in the middle of the road, a uh, sort of makeshift roadblock, and he was pointing his rifle at us. And we were like, yeah, yeah cheers, mate, go and do one. Yeah, yeah just, just mega laughing at the whole situation. And as we sped past him, we could just hear gunshots. And again, we're just laughing because we thought, look, that idiot, he couldn't hit a barn door. Turns out he was the Congolese shooting champion that year because he was a pretty good shot. Oh. And he'd shot out one of our uh, rear tyres, which we didn't know, I didn't know at the time. Maybe the driver of the car did. Anyway, so we're, so we're sort of gone around the corner, we're all laughing, yeah, we got away with that. That was a bit, that was a bit scary maybe, but that was all right. Um, and, and, and then there was, there was a big massive bang. And as I looked round, there was, and you'd have seen it in the films, the old, what they call technicals, the old Hilux um, van, uh, pickup truck with, uh, I'm going to say, six to eight African lads hanging over the back of it with their AKs just hosing into our car. Mm. And that was the big bang. The, um, the window had been shot out. So we were like, you know... This is real. This, yeah, this isn't so funny anymore. So um, there then proceeded to be a car chase uh, in which we were, the, uh, we were the hares and they were the rabbit... Uh, they were the bloody dogs. And, uh, yeah, they were shooting and shooting into the car. I had a, I had a bullet go through my hair. Uh, and I remember thinking... I'm just about to die and mm. I just hope it doesn't hurt. That's all I, that's all I wanted. Um, and the most frightening thing was that I didn't know what to do. I, I was a sergeant in the Royal Marines. You put me out on the, all the other stuff that we've, you know, desert, jungle, snow, whatever. I know what I'm doing. I did not know what I was doing in that car or I didn't think I knew what I was doing. And that bothered me and it bothered me for a long time, but it, but it bothered me then, obviously. Mm. I didn't know what to do, but all I knew was that we had to get out of that car. We had to get out of that car. We had to get hard cover. We had three pistols. That's no match against four, uh, sort of about eight AKs that were that were going in the car. Um, one of the lads I didn't know at the time, but he'd been hit in the back. So a bullet had gone into the back of the car. He was sat behind me. The bullet had gone into the car, broken up and gone in. So the fragments had gone into his back. So he wasn't seriously injured, but but nonetheless, he technically had been shot in the back. Um, and just as I was thinking to myself, how am I going to get us out of this situation? It was kind of taken out of my hands. When as we went around a corner, they just rammed us from the side. Uh, I think it was in my side of the car. They rammed us like that. And that stopped the car. The car was stopped. All the electrics had gone in the car, so we couldn't wind the windows down. We're now surrounded by these lads, proper irate lads, shouting at us in French and all this. And we're like, we, we, can't, get out the, we, we can't get out of the car, trying to explain it to them. So they then uh, 
They then smashed the windows and dragged us out of the car. So we're now lying on the floor next to this car that's got smoke coming out of it. Some very, very angry African lads. We don't know who these guys are um, or why the, the situation started in the first place. And then I hear a lot of gunshots. And so I, I was on this side of the car with one of the lads and the other two lads were on the other side of the car. And when we heard these gunshots, I just saw this smoking barrel of an AK-47 walking around, you know, the bloke just carrying it to the trail like that. And, and I, I'll never forget this. I looked at the bloke next to me and we were both like, shit, we're, we're just about to be killed. We had no doubt in our minds. And, we, and, we, and I'll never forget the look in his eyes and he said, it's the same with me. It was just like, and all I remember thinking was, I'm never going to know my son. I wasn't scared. I just couldn't stop thinking about him. No. Because I'd only known him for, for a week. And, and I was pissed off. Sorry. Uh, that's all right. That, no, that's all right. You know, he was gonna he was gonna know nothing about nothing, me. No. And, uh, other than that, I've been killed in a ditch, in some uh, some street in Africa. Anyway, obviously they didn't. And you're in civilian clothing. At the I'm, time. I'm in a pair of shorts and flip flops. So there's no there's nothing to distinguish no. you between anybody else. You're no. not in any military clothing. No. So you know there's there's different rules of engagement yeah, when yeah, you, yeah. as well. Yeah. And. Um, what the, the other the, the guys in the other cars and they and they did the absolute right thing. They didn't get involved, but they followed to see what happened to us because there's, there's no point in them getting brass up as well because it, that doesn't do anyone any favors. So, so they they did absolutely the right thing. It was they followed to see what was going to happen mm. so that they could help us should that happen. And it turns out the gunshots were them mocking. They were firing into the ground around us. I, I wasn't aware of it, but I was told later that that's what they were doing. They were they were firing into the ground mock execution around us. Yeah. Um, or was a means of control, whatever it was. Yeah. But then, but so then, when I realised I wasn't going to be killed there and then, um, I was aware of a lot of people in the crowd with big machetes. So I'm now thinking, Somalia, we're we're just about to be bloody hacked to yeah. pieces here in the streets. And uh, so they then bundled us into this van, in, into the truck that had taken. I thought they were taking us away to kill us somewhere a little less public. Um, so off we go. And anyway. It turns out, long story short, these were the local cops. They were the, they were the cops. And um, they took us to the local jail and they, 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 were, they were pretty aggressive and they, they, they shoved us into this jail. Um, it didn't help that they'd now confiscated, obviously, our pistols. So they're, they're now thinking, right. who are these guys in civilian clothes carrying, carrying these pistols? Um, so they put us in this, what can only be described as the, as the black hole of Calcutta. It was, a, it was horrendous. No windows, no light, no nothing. It was just pitch black. And they shoved all four of us in there. And then as your eyes become accustomed to the dark, we were aware that, that we weren't the only people in there. <laughs> we were like, all right, okay. So, uh, so we, all, we, we, we didn't know what's going to happen. Are we going to get murdered? What, what? I don't know. Mm, so nice. we were all stood there. I, I, I don't know. I think it was a natural thing. We all stood with our backs against the wall, you know, by the door. We're, we're, gonna, we're not going to go down easy sort of no, thing. No, no. And I don't know how long we were stood in there for. Enough. They just staring at us. We could just see these little eyes staring at us. Um, and again, I don't know how long we were in there for. But this, the door opened, and the bloke who was in charge of the blokes who were shooting at us um, beckoned me out, and and the other lad who, who just happened to be the bloke driving the car. So we were pulled out, and then we were marched upstairs. And I'm thinking, why? You know, I, I, in fact, I was more worried about the two lads on their own now. Yeah, no, of course. In that room. Anyway, they they pushed, and I'll never forget this bloke's face. He was a he was a little so-and-so he, he was shoving us with his rifle he's just been a little little so-and-so and he shoved us in this room it was quite a big room bare room with just a table in the middle a couple of chairs this side a couple of chairs that side and a light single light bulb 
classic. Yep. And uh, sat this big henchman, if you like, sat us down, um, stood behind this big, big, massive bloke. And then these two lads came in, they were in suits, just sat opposite us. And um, it was an interrogation. But I don't speak French and they don't speak English. So it took a lot longer than it needed to. And uh, I then spent the next however many hours it felt like convincing these blokes because they were going, what was in that bag? Why are you smuggling guns or ammunition and secret communications equipment? It was the... It was the uh, oh. the um, armor piercing rounds and the radios. They didn't understand that's what it was, and it was brought over by an ambassador, um, which is important. So we spent this amount of time to so listen. We're just thick soldiers. We're nothing. We don't know what's going on. We're we're visiting your beautiful country because the way we were told weeks before this by the uh, the French general's bodyguard, he was probably the most frightening bloke I've ever seen in my life. He was an ex legionnaire. And he looked it. He looked hard as, as, <laughs> as a coffin nail. And um, the advice he gave us, he said, "Listen, if you ever, if you ever run somebody down in the street, if you ever do anything like that, anything like that happens, just go." He said, "Do not stop to help because it doesn't matter what the truth of the matter is; they will kill you." Um, and and you know, Africans are all about um, being proud Africans. You know, you you make them feel good about themselves. Yeah. Um, so I remembered that at this interrogation I said yeah, well, yeah we're here visiting your beautiful country we wanted to take like, some photographs so we could show our families back home at what great place we've been all this all this nonsense I mean that, that, that I'm saying that quickly now that took a long time yeah of course then they had, there was a um, uh, one of these jotter things and it was from the local beer company which is the worst beer you've ever tasted in your life <laughs> called Ungok it was nasty but and I was going oh look, look, look you know it's just anything to just distract these I was talking about the beer I even had an Ungok t-shirt on actually I said oh, I love it it's brilliant it's the best beer I've ever had you know all this um, and eventually these lads kind of believed us I suppose whatever it was we were saying and so we were taken back down by the same idiot that was pushing us about and he pushed us into the main prison so it was a it was a corridor really wide corridor with so where we'd come in it would open up and the corridor went left and right and then on this wall there was I think three cells either side of the main door into it and we never that, that was the one at the end right. that, we, that we'd been in so we were now loose if you like in this corridor yep. just the four of us and again I remember thinking to myself I, I, I was like I was thinking right okay you'll get out of this you always get out of things you know and then, and then it would it hit me well no, you might not be getting out of this one. I don't really know how I'm going to get out of this one. And then I'd be right. No, but I'll get out. But it was, it was, it struck me years later. That it was that loneliness of command. I was the bloke in charge of these three lads. They were my responsibility. They could look after themselves. It wasn't me being a dad. No, but they were my responsibility. Yeah. And so I, I felt I had to, you know, be the. I'll take anything they want to give us, but just leave them free alone, sort of thing. That's that's yeah. how I felt. Um, and uh, so I was trying to think of all these different, oh, did I say the right things up there? What, what, what do I need to do now? How am I going to get out of this? Um, and then, again, I don't know how long it was, some, some uh, African lad was shown into the prison. And, and it, but he, he came in as if he owned the place. It wasn't like he was a prisoner, but he wasn't a guard either. I, I didn't really understand what he was. And he, he rolled out a mat and I realised that I was in his spot. And I, and I thought, you know what? I'm not moving from this spot because I'm not showing you that I'm not able to look, you know, do you know what I mean? So yeah, I, yeah. I, so he, I, I didn't move from his spot and he kept on looking at me and he was looking at me like that. And, uh, he laid this rag rug down on the floor 
And as he settled on the floor, he started pulling things out of his pockets. And all the time he's pulling stuff out of his pockets, he's looking at me. And then I noticed he'd pulled three condoms out of his pocket and he's looking at me. And I'm going, well, at least if he rapes me, I'm not going to get AIDS. Yeah. <laughs> at least he's going to rubber up before... before yeah. Anyway, so this... this we were just there and I, and I said to the lads, right, don't sit down. No one sit down. We need to, we need to stay awake. We don't... Because you're still in that adrenaline rush. Uh, and I didn't want anyone relaxing because I, I, we didn't know what was coming. We no. didn't know. Anyway, I, again... However long later it was, uh, some English officer turned up with four ration packs, British ration packs, because uh, and one bottle of water. That's all we had. Not each, one bottle of water and a ration pack each. But of course, the Congolese, and rightly so, they're stripping everything. Every every sugar bag was being looked at and was being looked at and looked at. Um, and then they they'd give us this stuff. He said, "Right, I got you some cookers." And I went, "Really?" Because we don't look conspicuous enough in here. Four white lads with a load of food. And you, you want us to now cook, you're all right. So that was the first food or what we'd had. And, and bizarrely, none of us were hungry. Um, but what I made sure they did at the time, you had uh, Kendall mint cake yeah, yeah, yeah. in the rations. So I made sure that all of us ate all of the Kendall mint, mint cake. Energy, I mean, yeah, just to keep that energy going, because again, we didn't know, but we just weren't hungry. And it was quite a thing to get it down and we sort of washed it down with a bit of water. And then again, later on in the day, the door opened again and loads of lads um, were, were brought in and they were all lined up against the wall by this fella who'd been looking at me uh, all day. And he started slapping them and he was he was you know, pushing them around and being really aggressive with them. And eventually he put all the others in, in one of the cells, but he brought one over to me. Um, and it turns out he was a prisoner, but he was like the daddy of the prison. And the reason he brought this fella over was because he this fella was from Liberia, I think it was, and he could also speak English. So right. he could speak French and English, so he was now the interpreter. And he was desperate to know why we were clear, because he'd been offering me food all day. Now, their food, I, I didn't even know what it was, but it was all wrapped in banana leaves. It was just honking. There's no way was I giving myself the runs <laughs> as well as whatever else was going to yeah. come as well. So I've been refusing this stuff all day. And he, and he threw this fella, he'd said, right, he said, I've been offering you food all day and you won't eat it. Now your own stuff arrives and you won't eat that. What's going on? And I said, well, I said, it's special military rations, these. I said, it's, uh, it's designed, because we have to carry everything with us. It's designed that you just eat a couple of mouthfuls and that's like a big meal. And, that, and that's why we've only eaten a little bit. I said, I'd love to try your, your glorious African food. You know, all this again. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we've got weak European stomachs. We probably wouldn't be able to do it. So, we, you know, and, and he, was, oh, he, was, he was quite happy with that. And then, you know, it's one of the lads had a commando tattoo. And he said, oh, you're commandos. And we were like, yeah. So how many people have you killed? And we're like, we're not here to kill people. And he said, well... You need if you if you get out of here alive, you've got to go and kill someone. He said it'll make you a man, and that, and that was his attitude to life. And we were like, oh Christ! So anyway, this one, and then while the food was being brought in, there was another bloke in there who was taking pictures and asking questions. We didn't really know who he was. Then the officers calling me Sergeant Mary, Sergeant Mary, and I'm like, shut up! I've just spent hours convincing these people that I'm nobody. So stop calling yeah. me Sergeant. Um, and then. And, it was dark. I don't know how long we'd been in there, but then we were then all of us taken upstairs by the same so and so at the point of his rifle. We got we went into this massive office, which turned out to be the um, it was the chief of the police of the whole country. It was his office, big massive Afri- you know Africans. They're all very sort of ornate, aren't they? You know and all this, and so it's big, big. And, and he didn't look at us, and we were told to sit on these sofas, and we were covered in God knows what. We'd gone through all that all day. The toilets in there are unspeakable. Mm. You, can't, you can't imagine. I've got flip flops on. Um, so we sat down there looking a bit sorry for herself and the French speaking Gurkha officer's in there and they're having a little jibber jabber and he's on the phone this, this ch- police chief it turns out he's on the, on, the, uh, on the phone to the president of the country who's subsequently been assassinated I believe but anyway so he's on the phone to him blah 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 and as, as I'm sat there like this thinking what's going on now 
I just happened to look up and right at the other end of the room were these two fellas that had been interrogating us, but they're now in their sort of local, whatever they call it, you know, their, their sort of local African dress. Yeah. In their civvies, you know, so they're, so, yep. they're, so they're over there. And I just I just looked up and as I did so, I caught the eye of the main bloke that had been interrogating us. And the weirdest thing happened. He looked me straight in the eye and he went like that. So you're indicating, you he stuck his tongue out and he's held his hands up to his ears. Yeah. Yeah. Why would he and, do and that? And I was just, and I don't know, but, but it made me laugh. And I'm thinking, this bloke's got literally my life in his hands here. And I'm now biting my lips, trying not to laugh, because it just, it just broke that whole yeah. whatever, you know, and it was just weird. And then anyway, a couple of minutes later, this, this fella just slammed the phone down, and without saying a word, he just, he just went like that, just swept his hand, pointed towards the door, and that was our key, and, and we were ushered out the, out the room. Um, and as we got outside... The girl crosses the right lads, that's it, you, you know, you, you're coming out. And he said, just for a matter of interest, who was sat in the uh, front passenger seat of that car? And I said, it was me. And he went, come and have a look at this. And the car was outside in their yard. And I can't explain this, but there's a hole through the headrest, which I'm assuming is the bullet that went through my hair. I've got the headrest in the toilet. I'll show you in a minute. Um, there was a couple of holes in the, in the um, glove compartment in front of me, which have come in somewhere. There was um, there was a couple of holes in my seat. There was a couple of bullet holes come through the door of the car, but all of them have missed me, uh, and I and I cannot I cannot explain that. It wasn't my time to die. It wasn't any of our no. time to die. Uh, you know, thank God they were. They Someone were bad was shots. looking out. Yeah, for they you, were. Man. Yeah, um, and uh, I looked at it and I was just like, wow. Like, yeah, you know, and to this day I can't explain that. And then we went back to the hotel for a beer, and I remember the brigadier came up to me uh, while I was having a drink, and he said. Um, Sergeant Mary, I'm sorry about that. And I went, well, it's not your fault, sir. But then months later, I thought about that. <laughs> Brigadiers do not apologise to sergeants. I can't think of an example of no. when that's happened. So lots of things happened um, after we got home. There was an article in the, uh, on CFAX. It was that th- uh, four Royal Marines had been arrested for drug and gun smuggling. My wife was told that's what I'd, no. th- that's what I'd been done for. Um, uh, and, you know, it was a complete... There was an ambassador involved and a brigadier. Now, I'm not blaming either of those two. I don't know. But somebody did something wrong and yeah. we were left to hang out to dry. Yeah. To the point where the two... I recommended all three of those lads in the car for an award. It's not up to me to say what award. The guy driving couldn't take cover. The other guy behind me was hit in the back but still maintained his composure. The other guy was just weeks out of training, young Marine. Uh, you know, yeah. and I thought they deserved some sort of recognition. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we had a, um, a, there was a big parade like we always do before you go and leave. And they said, oh, there's a couple of awards to give out. And I'm like, brilliant, the lads are getting, are getting something. And they read out, it was a, it was a Commandant General's uh, citation. And they read out the two lads that we'd gone to help, their names. But they added what had happened to us in the citation. I went mental. I went absolutely mental. Because there's a few things that happened that suggested cover-up to mm. me. And... Um, I went storming into the RSM's office. Luckily, he wasn't there. And the padre had only recently christened my son, got hold of me. So said, you were right. And I said, no, I'm effing not. I'm, you know, this has been a cover-up. And he, he took me into the adjutant's office and I, and I had a right old rant at him. And he said, well, Sergeant Mary, cover-up's probably too strong a word. I went, I knew it. I knew it. What would you have told my wife if I'd have been killed? Would she have buried me thinking I was a drug smuggler and a gun, a gun runner? Is that, is that what you'd let her believe? So to this day... There was a video of us lying on the floor and being taken away, gone missing. 
never never been seen again. All sorts of different things happened. That was it's all very. It's been erased from Royal Marines history. That whole the whole deployment was erased from Royal Marines history. Years later, I was on my sergeant major's course and uh, at the Corps Museum, and they were talking about deployment to uh, to Congo uh, or to yeah DRC then uh, the Congo. Year, uh, years later, something similar happened, and some lads went out. They're a very different situation, um, and they. Um, they said, oh, yeah, and there was this operation, whatever it was. And I went, what about Op Determinant, the one that happened in 1997? And, and this is the core historian. And he went, I don't know what you're talking about. And I went, well, I didn't make it up. We were there. I've got all the paperwork for it. I've still got the paperwork for it. But it was, it's been completely erased from Roman's history. Unbelievable, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. How did that make you feel? I mean, the, the uh, being erased, one thing, but the, the fact that you could be, be meeting your maker, Yeah. how did that make you feel? You've got a young child, you've, you know, you, you've got your wife. How, how, how was I, that? I genuinely, genuinely wasn't afraid of dying at that point. All I could think about was my son. Hmm. That's all I could think. I, I was, I was, can I swear a little bit? Yeah, of course you can. I was pissed off. You can swear as much as you like. I was, it's... I was, I was pissed off that, that this was where I was going to die. Yeah. You know, in some grubby little street in Africa. Yeah. Some untrained oaf was going to kill me. Yeah. And there was nothing I could do about it, and that and that pissed me off. Yeah, and 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 I, and I just I was just so desperately upset. Yes, that I was never going to see my son, or that or that he would never know me. I'd only known him for a week, so at least I had that. Um, but I, I genuinely don't remember being scared. Uh, um, the only overwhelming thing, other than what I've just explained, was this overwhelming thing that I did not know what to do. In in that, I'd never been trained to deal with a situation like that. Uh, and it bothered me for a long time, but then I accepted, and I do accept the fact that w- whatever I did, we all walked away alive. Yeah, and, so, the, and, so and you're here to tell the tale. Exactly. So the decisions I made were the right ones. I just didn't know I was making the right decisions yeah. at the time. And, and I, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, that's an interesting way. Yeah. No, absolutely. So you, you're now back in the UK. Yeah. What point do you get made up to? So, what is the rank structure in the in the Marines? Because so, staff sergeant, co- well, colour sergeant colour in the Marines, which is a staff sergeant equivalent, I guess, in, in the army. So, yeah. So, uh, so then, then we deployed to Iraq. We did the whole Iraq thing, the uh, the invasion of Iraq, Optelic, two thousand. What was that like, Telic? I mean, uh, I've got a lot of friends who went through that, and it um, was um, again another very surreal, very surreal experience. The um, so I went as a sergeant, but it was at this time that they were they were talking about promoting me to colour sergeant, and I was really worried they were going to promote me and send me home, and I was going to miss the whole thing. That was that was that was. Bothering. And that's not what you trained for, is it? No, I wanted to. I, you know, I'd spent all this time. I, I so I'd had back surgery in October, and then in February we sailed for Iraq. You know, so I didn't think I was going to even get on the ship, but I did. Um, so I'd spent all that time training my Marines. You know, we getting them all into a proper gel team and all this. So the last thing I wanted to do was leave them. Yeah. You know, let someone else take over. So anyway, so so. So yeah, we sailed down and it was, you know, we, we, we stopped in Cyprus. We did some training there and it's like everything else, you know, you don't really believe it's going to happen because it, but, but you, you go through the whole process, you know, this is going to happen. This isn't going to happen. And we started planning uh, what we were going to do. Um, and then when we got to, I think it was Q8 or that area, myself and the company commander and my troop commander went ashore because they needed to liaise with SEAL Team 3, um, who were also going to be assaulting the Al 4 Peninsula uh, that night. And so I just went along as, as their anti-tank advisor, really. So, you know, and I got chatting to the SEAL team chief. Uh, we became sort of 
buddies, I suppose, over those, those few days that we were there. And he said, well, why aren't you coming on this attack? And I said, well, I'm not, it's not my job. I'm not really, uh, I'm not really here to do that. I was a colour sergeant by then. They had promoted me, but I, knew, but I wasn't getting sent home yet. Um, and I said, listen, I, as much as I'd love to come with you, it's not my job. You know, that's, that's someone else's job. So it, I don't know how, but they, they swung it. So I was now attached to SEAL Team 3. Uh, so we had seven, I think it was 17 of us Marines attached to SEAL Team 3. And when I say attached, we became members of SEAL Team 3. We live with them, we work with them, we train with them. Um, and it was great. They were really good lads. They were really nice lads. Uh, we, we came up with, um, I would say we very heavily influenced their plan of how they were going to attack this position. We were to attack basically a football field-sized uh, oil installation. It's where they pump the oil out from Iraq out to some platforms out to sea where they're oh. pumped onto ships. So we had to capture these intact. Yep. Um, and that was the joke. You know, we're here. We're not here for anything else just to capture this oil. That's, you know, maybe we were. I don't know. Yeah. It wasn't for us to say. Um, so we spent weeks rehearsing this. We built a, a you know, a mock-up of this installation that we were going to attack. We worked out exactly how we were going to do it, who's going to do what and all the rest of it. So I now found myself as a colour sergeant doing a rifle section commander's job, a corporal's job, and it was amazing. Because <laughs> the more rank you get, the more office bound you come, oh, the, yeah. more, you know, the more admin there is involved. Yeah. So now I'm running around doing a 25-year-old corporal's job as a 30-something-year-old sergeant. It was a, ma- a colour sergeant. I loved it. Um, and uh, so we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. And then on the 19th of March, 2003... Um, I think a couple of scuds got fired and that was it. All gloves were off and, and we were going in. So uh, I can't remember. I think the night before we had the most weird, <laughs> we, they knew something was afoot. So they, they had this big hangar. Uh, we, we were in Kuwait in a place called Ali Al-Salem Air Base, big, big US air base there. And um, they had this big hangar, big, massive US flag, the biggest one you've ever seen, some jets lined up and a few other sort of Gucci kit that they yeah. got. And everybody was lined up and they showed this massive video and it was it was a real God bless America video, real over the top, yep. you know, everything we're doing is right. And all, it was just, it, and, and looking around me, there was US servicemen crying. They were, they, and all my lads are looking at them going, what's going on here? This is a bit weird sort of thing. And they're all yeah. sort of crying and, you know, God bless America and all this. Um, and so we knew something was going to happen. And then the next day, when these scuds started flying about, we all had to get into our NBC suits. I never thought I'd go to war in an NBC suit, the old uh, nuclear chemical yeah. biological suit. Uh, so we're wearing that in the desert. It was horrendous. Um, and then it was time to go. So we got we 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 all marched out to a helicopter, uh, and there was eight. Uh, so I was the section commander. There was eight of us down one side of the helicopter, eight seals down the other side of the helicopter, um, and again very surreal. So we got in the helicopter. The ramp was down. And as it went down the runway, it seemed like everybody on that base was lying in the runway, and they were all saluting. Wow! As all these, it was it was like wow, that's that's kind of cool actually. So off we were, we trundled down there, and we and we took off, and so we were the first people to to land in in, in Iraq. We what? were the very first helicopter first. to land in Iraq. That, that and night. what was the resistance like when you got there? Well, I'll go back slightly. So as we're on the helicopter, this is where it becomes really weird. I looked at my, I remember looking at my watch, and it was I think. Uh, it was 10 o'clock at night. I think there was a three-hour time difference, something like that. I think it was 10 o'clock. So I'm now in this helicopter, booted and spurred. We're going to invade a country. We're, we're toppers with ammunition yep. and guns and all the rest of it, all, all sort of riled up for it. And I looked at my watch, it said 10 o'clock. And I knew that that exact time back at home, my wife would be putting my kids to bed because they were very young then. At that exact time, she had no idea 
what I was doing. Not a clue. No. And it made me think of that film, We Were Soldiers. Yeah. And I don't if you if you watched it, but you see yeah. they're all fighting for their lives yeah. in the jungle and their and their wives are, and they've got no clue. Totally oblivious. And and so that just made me think of that and it was quite a moment for me. Yeah. And I remember standing up looking out the window of, of this helicopter. Obviously it's all dark, everyone's in their own lost in their own thoughts, a couple of lads are messing about, whatever. And a cruise missile. Just not not right next to the helicopter, but a cruise missile just flew past, heading on up into into Iraq somewhere. And I just thought, wow, that what, what Jesus, yeah, that's, what's just that's amazing. And, and and that sort of that that you know shit just got real right there. You know that, yeah. that's when it was. And then um, and then as we were coming into land, there's a rolling map inside the helicopter, so we could see where we were. Um, and as we we're coming into land, we we're all getting ready to go out the door. And, and I could smell cordite, real strong smell of cordite. And again, it's really noisy in this helicopter. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that was the door gunners uh, with a with, Laying down a, with so a mega sort of one of these Gatling gun things. Yeah, yeah. Um, just just hosing the so place what, down. So what, what aircraft were you? What sort it of helicopter? MH fifty three. So it's a massive US Marine Corps, huge huge helicopter. Not not a twin rotor thing, but it's no. just that if you can imagine the biggest helicopter yeah. ever. It's, it's it's this bloody great thing. Um, and yeah, so that was the door gunners hosing the place down. And as we landed, we were we were the first out. The Marines on, on my side were the first out. So I was number five. And as the lads are running, so each man that ran out the door went down straight away, literally like that. Boom, 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 just straight down. And I'm yeah. thinking, oh my god, they're all you know they're, they're, we're under fire. We're getting shot. There's nothing. I've got to keep going. I've got I've got to do it. Yeah. And as I've got to the end of the ramp, um, I'd seen what was going on. The, uh, the ramp had gone down into a barbed wire entanglement. Oh. So of course these lads are just doom 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 straight into the into straight the barbed wire. wire. So I've run over the top of them, and then everyone else has got and we're just sort of trying to drag them out through the wire. So we're now all in position, sand everywhere. The seals have come out. They've gone around the other side wherever they went. Um, and as the excuse me, as the helicopter lifted up, back there where that wall is, this head popped its popped itself up out of this trench right in front of me, and I was like, so I opened fire, um, and then I could hear a lot of shouting going on in this trench that's full of full of Iraqis so, this is one of the most embarrassing things I've ever done in my life so on a hand grenade there's a thing called um, a, a transit clip and basically what that does it's like a it's almost like a um, a jubilee clip almost so it sits around the neck of the grenade and it sits over the lever so I don't know if you know the, the mechanism of a grenade so you hold that lever you pull the pin out yep so that pin is stopping that lever operating. When you let that go, the lever flies off, yep. and that's what starts the fuse of the grenade, which is between three and five seconds. Right. So you pull the pin, you throw the grenade, the lever flies off in the air, three to five seconds later, the grenade goes off. So the transit clip is, is when, you're in tran when you're carrying it yes. around. This clip is on there. So even if the pin fell out, and it's not like the films where you can pull it out of your teeth, they're really hard to get out. But if the pin was to fall out, the grenade won't go off because the, the lever can't fly up. No. So you can pull the pin and throw it and it won't go off. So I wrestled with this clip, flicked it off, pulled the pin and posted the grenade into the trench. I was like this. Okay, nothing happened. And then they all stood up and surrendered. So they've all stood up and surrendered. We then carried on the rest of the night. We cleared a load of trenches. Um, and come daylight... Looked inside the trench. I hadn't taken the Jubilee clip off. Fully. Oh. So I had thrown the grenade. I had made an effort to take that clip off, but it was still on the grenade. On the positive side, there were six lads in that trench, which I probably would have killed. Yeah. Had. Yeah. And they surrendered. As it was, there was one guy that I did kill, but it wasn't all of them. 
So no. I, I, I was embarrassed. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm going to ask you that. What's that like? If you're 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 protecting your own life, mm. but you're taking someone else's life, yeah. how, how does that? Um, I'm not a moralist, by no, the way. No, no, and, no, and, no, and, no, no. I'm not asking for that. I've reason. I've never lost a moment's sleep over it. I don't feel good about it. I don't no. celebrate it. But I've never lost a moment's sleep no. over it because that was my job. And his job was to make sure that I didn't go home. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and he lost. And, yeah. and it's as simple as that. And I, and I you know, at, at the end of the day, that's our job. And, and, and it's arguably the weirdest job in the world if, if you're allowed to kill people. Yeah, I, no. I, not, and I, and I, don't, yeah. No, I, I don't know of anybody who takes any joy. No, gratification. I, I generally don't no, know. I don't. Um, I've not lost a moment's sleep over it. I don't think about it. Really, you know, we're talking about it now, but it, but I'm not talking about it if any any sort of guilt or shame or anything no. like that. Um, I did what I needed to do. I'm glad that grenade didn't go off. Yes, because arguably those other lads didn't need to get killed. Yeah, and I'm glad it didn't go off. Yeah, so that you know, so so I am glad about that. But uh, but yeah, no, I, I you know I, I don't. No, it's it's just weird. I mean, look, I lost mates out there and. Um... I know you did, you know, and I know there's lots of people here yeah. in the tower that did, and um, and that's what happens in a war. Isn't yeah, and it? that's what it's about. And people don't necessarily understand. That, no, you know, um, oh, he was just sticking his head out the trench. You shouldn't have shot him. Well, none of the others did. No. They all surrendered. Yeah, exactly. Because he had to go. You know, and the, the only sort of the only moment I did have with it actually was the next day. Um, I killed him, and I think one of the seals killed another one. So there was these two bodies that were searched and of course had documents on them and all the rest of it. And I just happened to walk past. I wasn't looking for it or anything like that. So I happened to walk past and one of the lads said, oh, you probably don't want to see this. And he held up a family photograph. And he's right, I didn't want to see that. Now I don't know if it's that bloke I killed and I don't know if it's this other one and I don't want to know. But I was like, yeah, you're right, I really don't want to see that. Because that then made it... Makes it real. Makes him a family man, same as me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and like I say, I don't know if that was him. I don't know if it's the other one. I don't no. know. Um, but a couple of days later, we, we and, and I was, you know, you hear all these people, oh, lads, lads, the old classic Vietnam thing with a, with a thing in their mouth or a you know, playing card in their mouth, whatever, the dead yeah. bodies. Those lads were defending their country and I was invading their country. So yeah. I don't hold any malice against them no, no. whatsoever. They were doing exactly what I'd have done if, if, if someone was trying to invade my yeah, country. Yeah, of course. Um, and so therefore they were respected and, and, and we, we buried them. We didn't. Not military, we, we, we basically chucked them in a trench and covered them over because yeah. you don't want bodies in your position. It's health no. and safety, or certainly for health reasons. Health reasons, yeah. Um, and uh, I might know, it's a couple of, maybe in the next day, something like that. So they've been in there 40 hours, maybe. Someone came over and said, look, the, uh, the dogs have been digging up the bodies and they're starting to eat them, you know. So they're gipping. Yeah, they're yeah. pretty nasty. So I said, right, okay, so we're going to we're gonna have to do something about this. So I, I went over to my lads thinking, right, I'm just about to ping them for something pretty, pretty gross. Yeah. And I said, right, listen, fellas, we've got to we've got to get these lads buried properly, you know, the doctor in them. Then, oh, brilliant! I'll go and get my camera. So I thought about that for a second, and I thought, right, okay. Now I can see people listening to this going, "You did what? You, they went and got their cameras." But what you got to understand is these were 18, 19 year old kids. One of them was born after I joined the Marines. Mm. So these are young kids. They're in their first experience like this. I don't know who you show those photographs to. It's not something I wanted to do. But they needed somehow to get that out of their system. Yeah. So I said, right, take your pictures if that's what you want to do, but you are not messing about with them bodies. You are not posing them. No. You're not, you know, these lads died 
defending Honorably, their country. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, we are not here to do that. And, I, and you know, and again, sort of PC brigade might be up in arms about that, but I understood that those Marines needed to do that. Yeah. But they were not, I was not going to let them no. disrespect. No, 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 no. And you could argue that taking a picture of them is disrespectful. Maybe it is. But I understood that they, that's what they needed in that moment. But that's, that is um, how we get history. Yeah. Because when you look at it over, over historical times, since we've had cameras, um, significant events like that have been yeah, photographed. Yeah, yeah. You know, when we went into um, the concentration camps, yeah. people it's took recorded, pictures. Yeah. It's yeah, recorded. Yeah. And, so, and that's what we're doing now. We're recording this for history. I don't know where those pictures went. I've never seen them, never, never, no. never asked. Um, and then the next day we were sort of doing a clearance patrol and we found another Iraqi and we think he was running from the position that we just assaulted that, that night. And he was half in a military uniform and half in civilly clothes. And a lot of them we found was civilly and clothes. So we think, we think that the people in this trench that I talked about first, they were, they were high-ranking officers and we found a big bag of money. And we think that they were coming along to pay these guys to stand and fight. And they just happened to get caught there. Right. Um, and we think this guy was just, he, he got his civvy clothes on and he was, he was off. He was running away. But he was dead. And he had the biggest hole you've ever seen through his head. And it wasn't even gross. It was just, imagine, it's, you know, like, like the Terminator, when yeah. he gets shot in the face and it's that big hole through and then he just, he just reconstitutes his face. It was like that. Obviously, wow. he weren't going to get reconstituted. The only thing I could think of is that we had, um, we had two A-10s circling above us to protect us yes. and a, an AC-130, which is a gunship, which has got um, artillery rounds in it. It's unbelievable what, what this thing can do. And they've caught him. And we think he was hit by a big, heavy-caliber round from one of these two aircraft, and it had gone through so fast and it's such a big thing that it just it literally left a hole in his head like that, um, and he was just lying on the floor. So uh, He wouldn't know a great deal about oh, that. Oh, he wouldn't have known that at all. So we, he was... It, it, in every other respect, perfectly intact. His head hadn't disintegrated. It was, it, it was, that's why it was so weird. It was just a perfect hole. And um, so I, I got everybody to bury him. And again, we didn't dig down to bury him. We covered him. Yeah. And I took a photograph, not of his wounds, but as they were burying him, because that was to record the fact that there was this guy out in the desert. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So somebody, and, um, and I, just, I just wrote on it, I got a stone and I wrote on it, one time's Iraqi and put the Latin long. Of, of where it was, well, took a were. picture of that, and so we could at least report that there's a body out there. Yeah, yeah. He's got a family, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so that was that was a pretty bizarre night. And then, um, yeah, the next day, you could and again, not in a weird way, but firework displays, as an example, for me, always reminds me of war. And not not because I'm hurt by it or the rest of it, it's, it's just that... It, it sounds like it. It bloody yeah. does. Yeah, you no. know, all the crackling and the booms and the bangs and all that. And that's exactly what you could hear going on all around. Because Iraq was getting invaded. There was all sorts going on further up, up country. Uh, so that, that went on for, for a little while. And then um, day six or seven. No, no, this was the next day. It's quite a funny story. So during the night, so by this time, the rest of the company had arrived. We got all the uh, heavy weapons. Um, uh, we had Milan's, uh, which is an anti-tank missile. Um, because because right next to us was a big Iraqi army base. We didn't know what danger that was going to present. So that's why we were there, protecting the southern flank of the whole invasion. Right. So we had Milan missile, I think two. I had two of those, and I had two point five machine guns, big, big 50 cal machine guns. Uh, and that's why I was there, to sight them. So when they arrived, they were sighted and ready to go. And I did that off a naval chart. didn't even have a proper map. It was a naval chart I managed to do it off. And anyway, the lads with the um, Milans got a thermal sight on there and they they reported on the radio that they could see somebody crawling about out to our front 
Now, this could have been a sniper, could have been an MFC, a mortar fire controller yep. going to bring in fire onto us. So he had to go, basically. So I'm thinking, right, okay. And I gave the target indication to the guys with the heavy machine guns, which had this really old, it's called a um, called a maxi kite, which is a really sort of like almost first generation image intensifier. Might as well, you know, just, <laughs> just had a torch out. So they weren't they weren't that good. But anyway, it's on top of it's on top of the guns, and the gunners couldn't see with this rubbish sight where this individual was. So I'm now thinking, right, okay, I've got a bit. Of a, we need to get rid of this guy. He's got to go. So I thought, right, okay, what we'll do, I'll do this. There's a thing, if you indicate a target, you use tracer. So you fire a tracer around right. at something and you say, watch my tracer. Where that tracer lands, that's, that's where everyone else then fires at the target. Well, nobody could see this bloke except the lads with the Milan missiles. These missiles cost £13,000 a go. So I thought, right, okay, we need to do a big watch my tracer here. So I said, right, I want number one Milan to fire at that individual. Gunners, where that missile strikes, rapid fire. And that's exactly what we did. We sent a £13,000 missile down towards this bloke. The gunners, you know, heavy machine guns are nasty, but they, they tear you right up. And, and So they're shooting at this thing uh, all night and then, and then they couldn't see him. And that was it, job done. Then come the morning, just looking out for me, binoculars. And I've seen somebody moving about, roughly in the area that no. we'd been shooting at the night before. And I was like, no way is this, you know, and he was clearly in some distress. So we sent out a fighting patrol with a medic to go down and see what this uh, what was going on, and uh, I was I didn't go on the patrol. I was I was back, but they but the lad said that when they got to this fella, he was ashen as you can imagine. One of his legs was missing, the other leg was barely hanging on by a couple of t- sinews or whatever it was, and he was lying there going, "I love Tony Blair, I love Tony Blair." No. Literally, that's what he was saying to him. And they got they sorted him out. The medic patched him up, uh, and we casavacked him. We got him away on a helicopter. And one of the ga- one of the lads' wives or girlfriends at the time was a navy medic. And we later found out that he survived. Wow! He lost his other leg, but this blow. And, and, and as he came back in before he got in the helicopter, everybody was shaking his hand oh. because he was the hardest bloke you've ever seen oh. in your life. He, he didn't. I mean, not very good on us that so we didn't manage to kill him, but he had endured that all night. Uh, and again, it's another example of we're glad we didn't kill him. Yeah, because, yeah, no, but you know, mutual respect. Yeah, because yeah. you know, fighting forces are. Yeah, you know, and he was he, all he was trying to do was get away. But we didn't know that. You no. Know, we couldn't take the chance, obviously. So that's why we engaged him. You know, if we knew that he was just trying to get away from the army camp, yeah. of course we'd have just captured him and he'd have been fine. But <laughs> we didn't know that. So, yeah, so it was quite funny. And then a few days later, day six or something like that, I, I was in a gunfight somewhere and a message came over the radio, Colour Sergeant Mary, stop what you're doing. You've been drafted. Drafted means you've been posted, sent somewhere else. And I was like, yeah, right, carried on. Colour Sergeant Mary, get back here. And I just in turned, the middle of a battle? Yeah, turned, turned off my radio. Uh, and eventually I got back and it turned out that the drafting system of the Royal Marines did not stop because there was a war on. Uh, so me, the sergeant major, another sergeant and about four or five of my Marines were all drafted off the Alfort Peninsula in the middle of a war. Uh, I was <laughs> absolutely, it's, it's the one thing I will never forgive the Royal Marines for, never. That's uh, unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So I'd done all this with these lads and I was now walking away and having to leave them. I've never felt so dejected in all my life. And we got back to headquarters a bit further up, um, and I remember someone come running in. It might be in the brigadier or something. Said, "Have we got any anti-tank specialists here?" And me and this other lad are like, "Yes, it's us." Right, they're counter-attacking. There's tanks on the ground, and we're like, "Brilliant, we can go back and do our job." And then that all fizzled out, and, and we didn't. So we were excited for a minute, and then we went back to HMS Ocean, feeling very dejected. Uh, we had a shower, flew home the next day. Uh, as got, quick as that? Oh, they, yeah, they yeah, just no, don't no, leave you in no. situ. I got back to Taunton. I put my kit in my office. Went home. I got a call the next day. Where are you? 
I'm at home. What are you doing there? Well, you sent me here. Now you're supposed to be in Cyprus with 4-5 Commando, X-ray company 4-5 Commando. So the next day, I got back on a plane, just picked my kit up. I hadn't even unpacked my kit. Straight back out to Cyprus, and I was now the uh, the quartermaster sergeant of X-ray company 4-5 Commando in Cyprus. We then flew forward into Iraq, and I ended up 50K from where they drafted me from four or five days previously. It was unbelievable. Um, and uh, and then we spent the rest of the time at a place called Umm Qasar, which was on the coast, uh, just uh, one of the rivers that goes up into Basra. Um, and um, I was the last person to come home. So uh, all the lads went home and I, I had all the kits. So I, I bought it all home on a C-17. Maybe Spike was on it, I don't know. <laughs> and um, yeah, and that was the end of that. So we had a bit of leave. Uh, so I was now colour sergeant. And then, so, oh, and before, oh, in fact, before all of that, in 2000, I was in 4.5. I went to 4.5. I was only up there for a year. Where is 4.5? Uh, where is Arbroath five? in oh, Scotland, Christ. yeah. Uh, don't want to go there, but I ended up in Scotland. It's as far away as it's possible to be. I lived in Plymouth at the time. And um, I decided I wanted to do something different in my career, so I ended up doing, um, I, I went and did what's called special duties, which is um, not for this no, 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 here, no, but, no, no, no. But, but yeah, so I went and did that. Uh, I worked over in Northern Ireland for two and a half years, then was drafted back to 40s. Right. I did, did the whole invasion of Iraq. But as soon as I got back to 40, I put in to go back to Northern Ireland. And so luckily I, did, I managed to do the optelic thing. Then I went, um, I went back to Northern Ireland and did another tour out there. Um, and then came back from there got good reports, did my Sergeant Major's course. I was now a warrant officer. But then I went back to, to, to my stuff in Northern Ireland, which is where it was. And then, and then I was sent to Baghdad. So Northern Ireland was coming to an end. So we then started to, to operate a little bit yeah. further afield. So I ended up in Baghdad. Um, and from there, went back to the Marines, went back to 4-2 uh, Commando, which is the last unit I was in. So I'd done all three units twice, each, each right. one twice over the years. Uh, uh, ended back. I was a company sergeant major in uh, in four two commander. We deployed to Afghanistan on Op Herrick five. Barney was on the same. Oh, yeah, we were sergeant majors in the same in the same unit. Well, I never. Yeah, yeah. So we were both sergeant majors. Um, but then the CO of the unit that I'd been in in Northern Ireland got in touch and said, "Look, we need we're short of people that are operating in Iraq uh, in Afghanistan. Can you do you think you'd be able to do that?" And I wasn't really doing much of a. I, I was just in the headquarters as a site major. Yeah, I wasn't really doing much abuse to anyone really. Um, so my CO of four two, I think, recognised that I'd be more used to him doing that than I was right. not just kicking around Bastion. So I then, um, I then went back to that unit, but operating in Afghanistan. So it was nice because my unit were there, but I was operating in a completely different yeah. way um, to them. Uh, and then the tour finished, and then I went back to four two. And then finished my time uh, as, as, as a site major on first of April, two thousand and eight. So, was it really as long yeah. ago as that? Yeah, fifteen years. And when 16. you left there, you then went into private enterprise. Yeah, I did rubbish security jobs for a year. I was the head of security for the John Charles de Menezes um, coroner's, oh, coroner's case. Yeah, because it was police against police. Yeah, uh, firearms versus um, surveillance police. <clears throat> Excuse me. They didn't want the police to be seen to be doing the security. It didn't look gotcha. like, so they got a private company in. Um, so I did that, uh, which is very interesting, I have to say. But, but yeah, that was interesting. And that, but, but I was working for a company, you know, I was doing stuff like, you know, 
security at a tennis tournament or security at Marks and Spencer's while they were doing a fashion show, you know. Six months before that, I was a special duties warrant officer. Now I was looking after, you know, the catwalk. It, it, it was destroying me. So there was a job. I was getting emails. There was a job going out in Iraq, uh, which I don't think my wife was particularly impressed with at all. You know, she didn't want me to do that, but she could see how unhappy I was doing this just nonsense stuff. It wasn't what I wanted to do. So she was like, just go and do it. So I spent a year in Iraq working for the US government, um, teaching the skills that I'd learned in, in Northern Ireland to yeah. the Iraqis on behalf of the US government. I got you. Because yeah. neither of those have got those skills. So they've got a load of us ex-lads, ex-military lads and ex-cops, uh, branch lads from yeah, uh, yeah. from from uh, the PSNI, or, or as they would say, IUC. IUC, yeah. Um, so we, yeah, we, so, so we taught, we didn't teach them everything, of course. No. Uh, but we taught them the very basic stuff that they needed to know. Um, that year paid off my mortgage, which is great. Came back from that um, after a year and then within two weeks I was offered a job in the maritime security company um, and did that for four and a half years. More guns. Yeah, more guns, yeah. So, yeah, uh, sailing around the Red Sea, the, the Gulf of Oman, across the Indian Ocean to um, to Sri Lanka and all that, just, just looking at And did them. you have a lot of problems whilst you were doing that? Um, as I used to say to the captains of the ship, it's like you never see a lion attacking the big fit wildebeest at the front of the pack. He always goes for the fat knacker, the wounded one or the kid <laughs> yeah. at the back. Yeah. So if you make your ship look dead tough, pirates aren't going to attack it. No. So that was half the battle. If you didn't do that, then yeah, pirates would attack you. So no, no pirates. Ever. I saw pirates and they were having a good look at us, but they're not stupid. They knew that that ship was, a t- you know, the ship that we had hardened. It was called hardening of a ship. Yeah. The ship that we'd hardened was was too tough a nut to crack and they knew there were four lads on there with guns who could probably shoot back. So they'd go and find one that hasn't got any, you know, hasn't yeah. got any security or hasn't got any means of protecting itself. And that's how it works. So, so no, I was never attacked. Some of the lads were, um, but no, I was never attacked. But, but, but yeah, definitely saw, definitely saw pirates. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I think that, I don't know, I'm, I'm assuming they're still running security on there, but it's not. It was a victim of its own success because yeah. the more we kept the pirates off, the more these companies didn't want to pay for the protection because, of course, no pirates are attacking. So yeah. it's that self-licking lollipop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then you go from there and you join the tower? Or come the- here, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I had an epiphany one night. I just didn't want to do that anymore. I just literally, I'd, I just got off the ship that I was on at the time. Uh, Barney had told me about there was a job advertised here, so I applied for it. I didn't get in the first time, actually. I, I failed uh, on my first attempt. Uh I think I was too honest about the job I did. I was. I, I told him that I played with guns, and that's not clearly something that's important here. Um, and so, I went fortunately, and got, not necessarily. Not necessarily, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I went. I went and so, so I thought, how can I make myself a m- more attractive candidate to this place? So I went and got a job at the uh, Fleet Air Arm Museum. Oh, did you? Down in Yo- I was living in Yeovil at the oh, time. Right. So I got a job down there, just showing people around. I didn't know anything about anything, but but. It was when I was eight, when I came back from my second interview, I could then say, I've got experience of the public. I've done this, I've done that, you know, blah, blah, blah. I completely civilianized the job I was doing. I, I didn't mention guns or, any, you know, whatever. Um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, got the job. So I started here in July, the day Prince George was born. I can't remember if that's June or July the 23rd, 2013. Right. Okay. It was a gun salute the day I joined. I thought it was for me. It was clearly for the, for the new, for the new prince that was born. So yeah, every, every, Every birthday for him is is my anniversary of being here. So yeah, ten years in June or July. I can't remember which one it is. And and it's a great place. And I'm not going to, you know, I, I absolutely, as I say, I love it here. But can you just help me here? Because 
I mean, you, you deal with the public, and um, but you are, um, you're a body of former military. Yep. You've done 22 years minimum, long yep. service of good conduct, yep. and all attained the rank of a warrant officer. Yep. Okay, so you are not um, tour guides. No. You're not tour guides. No. Let's, let's get that out there. And you are the Queen's bodyguard when she was alive. You're yep. now the King's bodyguard. Yep. And you stood with my friends and, you know, yeah. and you looked after the coffin of Her Majesty the Queen. Yeah. Greatest honour of my life. Uh, what, what was that like, Andy? What- Greatest honour of my life. I can't, I can't, it's very difficult to put it into words. I mean, it was one of those things, very, it was very unreal, you know, when we were told we were doing it, even when we were there, it's, you know, the, the old banter and everything. But as soon as those two taps, which we heard on the TV started, everyone put their game face on and we marched down. Um, but there was a real sense of unreality about it. It was mm. just a, it was just something we were doing at work. And I remember people saying to me, what, what, what did the coffin look like? Were you looking at the coffin? And I said, I don't remember anything about the coffin because although it was, A, it was behind me, but B, as we were marching in position, we were concentrating on what we were doing and looking at the bloke opposite us. Cause we'd then have to turn at the same time and do all that sort of stuff. So I didn't really look at the coffin. And then people said to me, well, what were you thinking about? And I said, well, the first couple of times I wasn't really thinking about a lot thinking, Wow, twenty minutes seems a long time, you know. <laughs> so I was just thinking about that, and then and then I sort of th- thought, well, I, I need to occupy myself somehow. So I started counting feet, so counting how many people walked past. I think six hundred and three was the most <laughs> I got in twenty minutes. Then I thought it would be interesting to see if anyone owns the same sort of shoes that I've got. <clears throat> so I was then looking out for any shoes that I might own. One, one pair, and all those people I saw. Um, and so that, yeah, and that was really all I was thinking about. And then it occurred to me that a I hadn't looked at the coffin yet. <coughs> And B, I probably should think about the Queen a little bit. So on the last vigil I did, which I think was on the last morning, it was 7.40 to 8 o'clock um, in the morning, I marched out there and I made myself look at the coffin. Look at it, look at it, look at it. So I did. I looked at it, uh, got into position, bowed my head, and I think I spent that 20 minutes just thinking about the Queen. Mm. And uh, it was... Diff- thinking about all the things the Queen had done and all, you know, I'd served the Queen since I was 17 years. I got my first set of blues when I was seven because I joined the Royal Marine Cadets and Deal. Now, I know I wasn't serving the Queen as a seven-year-old cadet. No, but... But I've been wearing the Queen's uniform literally since I was seven years old. I'm 56 now. And um, that, that the realisation that this was the last 20 minutes that I would spend... Not not with the Queen, but but serving serving her. the Queen, yeah. And that was really really powerful, and 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 that really I, I was having to sort of think, well, don't don't do it, don't do it, don't cry. You know, do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, you no, could feel, I'm with you. You could feel the emotion welling up, um, uh, and I knew that as I turned and walked away, that was it. I wasn't going to serve the Queen mm. anymore. And I know we've got a King, and life goes on, and all the rest yeah, of yeah. it, and that's exciting. But all those years, that's all we've ever known. Any of us have ever known the Queen. That that was the last twenty minutes. And did you ever have the opportunity in your service, either here or in the Royal Marines, to actually meet her or be, you know, be in her presence? I went to a garden party while I've been here, so so yeah, been in her presence there. Um, I've, I've done parades where you know where she's been on yeah, yeah. when I was serving in the Marines, but but not real sort of close contact with the Queen because I know she's been here and had her photograph. Well, taken. I was going to say that's the other time was when when she came here. You know, we all. Um, yeah. Obviously, gathered around her, had a photograph, and she said a few words to us. 
Um, you, to be honest with you, mate, you can't get a lot closer than that. There's no. only, there was probably 37 of you at that time. Yeah, there was, yeah. And, uh, and we're interestingly, a lot of people don't know this, but we're the only people allowed to be armed in her presence. Now, I know she has soldiers on parade with arms, but we can stand next to the sovereign with a sword because we're members of the bodyguard. Yeah. Uh, in Extraordinary. Um, so we are allowed to be armed with that sword in the presence of the sovereign because we're there as bodyguards. And, and so you, you'll see messages, uh, I think I'm right in saying, even military officers have to hand their swords in as they go in, but not not us. You well, know, so if, if, if any of us get any awards or anything like that, then uh, in, in, from the sovereign, then we can still be armed. And some of the things, one of the things that infuriated me is because obviously I know what you guys do and, and who you are, but there are a body of yeoman... Yeoman of the Guard. Yeoman of the Guard, yeah. So and that, they wear a... Cross belt. Cross belt. That's the only way you can tell the difference. They carry yeah. a cross belt because they used to carry a carbine. So we, we were all formed in 1485, but in four, I think it was 1509, Henry VIII then split that bodyguard, kept the young fit ones as, as his personal bodyguard and left the sort of fat, fat knackers here. <laughs> I, yeah, but he did leave. There were some yeoman... I think there were some older yeoman guard work were kept here. Right. And that has then... So that's kind of the split right, okay. from, from those two... Um, they do a great job. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah, they yeah, do no, a great no, job, but they're yeah, not. Yeah. People see them and, and they probably get the same. It's like, oh, there's a beef. Yeah, well, that, that's yeah, because they get that all the time. They everyone thinks they're the lads at the tower. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. So on. Um, so yeah, there is that. Uh, you know, um, but but yeah, I, I think most people see us because we're in the public all the time. So therefore, they assume that. But so we get we we therefore get sworn in as yeoman of the guard in extraordinary, right? Which is okay. why we were stood around the queen's coffin because, of course, that was a big deal. There was a, there was a lot of. Massive. Men that men and women that were needed, and yeah. so of course we can then because we've also been sworn in as that sworn in as that we we can obviously take Contribute part. In that. Yeah, so um, yeah, I was in Australia. And I watched you guys with absolute pride. My chest was busting. Well, do you there. know what? Right, that that was on the TV in the room that was our rest room. So when you marched up the stairs, it was a five minute delay on the on the on what was on the TV oh, in right. case anything happened. happened. Yeah. So there was a and five minute did. delay, and it did. Um, so when you marched up the stairs, so you'd finished your vigil. You could then see yourself being relieved and marching up the stairs. So, so what everyone did as they came upstairs, they'd have a look to see what you know. Did they look like a knob or something like that? You know, so, <laughs> so you'd go and watch yourself marching up the stairs. Yeah, so that was a bit weird. And you had to rehearse before you went there, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, they they got a, a life size mock up um, at um, I've got them in the barracks now. Where the, where all the uh, the horse lads are? Where all the household carrier. Knightsbridge, yeah, the one in Knightsbridge. Uh, so yeah, they've got in, in the gym there. They've got a full size mock up. So everybody that was on a vigil, not just us, but the, the gentlemen archers, the, the owner of the guard, the, the gentlemen at arms, we all went there first. Even if we'd done it the night before, we'd still have to go there and rehearse it. Um, I mean, it was literally military yeah, precision. Yeah, it was, it was good. It was a nice thing because it was like, wow, we, we're actually quite good at this. Mm. You know? Oh, no. Well, and the, the years of experience. We, we cuff a lot of things, I think, all of us. But, but yeah, that, that was good. It was, it, was, it was an amazing thing to be a part of. So I'm going to go on to another amazing thing. You, and I hope you don't mind me mentioning it, but you were diagnosed with multiple sclerosis since yep. you've you come here. And, you know, you've done some... You've, your motivation is second to none for me because you've done some amazing things, but you've kept yourself going yeah. physically and mentally. You, you know, you were working out in the gym, you just keep going, but you went to Mont Blanc. Yeah. Can you talk us through that? Um yeah. So what, Sorry, what, mate. No, 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 no. Uh, so when, when I was diagnosed with MS, I think you can take that one of two ways. You can you can let that destroy your life or you can just say, well, 
okay, I've got MS, I'm not, I'm not going to let it destroy my life. And I chose the latter. Um, I didn't really know what it was all about when I first got it. It, it seemed all right, actually. It's, it's, I don't think that now it's, it's not nice at all. But um, I decided to do something positive with it. So I'd been, um, a friend of mine lives in Chamonix and I've been down there on a bike, seen, seen Mont Blanc, Never, I knew Mont Blanc existed, but never considered doing anything about it. And so anyway, stayed, stayed there. We went up Mont Blanc, or uh, there's a cable car you can see Mont Blanc from. And I thought, you know what, that needs climbing. Um, uh, I, might, I might like to climb that. And, and if I'm going to climb it, I might as well make some money out of it as well. So I roped in some, uh, some unsuspecting. So my brother, my son, another lad I serve with who's got MS as well. And he's got a different one to me, but nonetheless, it's MS. And the lad that I that we visited, he lives in uh, a Marine I served with, he lives in Chamonix, uh, and another lad who was a mountain leader in the Corps, who right. was a Sergeant Major with me, uh, who's now a copper in Gloucester. Uh, so that was the six uh, unsuspecting fools that I managed to rope in to do it. And we, we do you know what, it was, it, was one of the, it was one of the greatest things I've done in terms of what I laugh, every video, every photograph you see of, of the whole experience, we're just laughing and having a good time. And that's not to take away, it was a rent, it was, it was hard. Mont Blanc is not a, no. A, a little mountain. It's a it's a cheeky mountain. Anyway, but if you have got a disability, it's even harder. And it really it really was a struggle to get up there. Um, but I thought it'd be a nice thing to show other people with MS that I'm not suggesting that everyone with MS can climb it. I'm not saying that now. I can't climb a mountain now. I struggle getting upstairs. That yeah. I could not climb Mont Blanc now. Not not wouldn't even think about it. But that's not the point I'm making. What the point I'm making is if you've got a mountain that you think needs climbing, just go and climb it. And that yeah. mountain might be just getting out of bed yeah. and walking around your garden. Yeah. That that might be your mountain. But don't find an excuse to not do it. Go and do it. And that's what I hoped that people would would take from that. And it was early stages of MS, so I was able to do it just. Um, but more importantly, we raised £60,000 for, for the MS Trust and the Royal Marines Charity. So, um, you know, that was... That was pretty satisfying. And, and I, I see other people doing extraordinary things and they say, well, like, we've we got £10,000, which is amazing because I didn't think £60,000 was that much money. It's hard work though to raise It's really hard. Yeah. Really, really hard. And I got, uh, and again, I used, I was able to use my position here as a young warder. I'm not on social media, but I was able to, I, I went on social media because that's yeah, the way yeah. you do these things. But I was able to, you know, people that I've met here, you know, just through working here, they were able to help me in such great ways that maybe other people wouldn't have had that opportunity yeah, to and you use. Have to, so, you I, did, so I did kind of use that. Yeah. But, you know, so yeah, so that was a cool thing. And and uh, I've been up Ben Nevis, I think, a couple of times since then. And I'm always being asked, are you going to climb another mountain? You're going to do something else? Um, <laughs> I've got something in mind. I don't know how I can organise this, but I want to... Um, there's a pub in Shoreditch called The Bike Shed. If you know right. it. and they've just opened one in Los Angeles I know the owners very well and I thought it might be kind of cool to have a drink in, in the bike shed in Shoreditch row across the Atlantic and then cycle across America to the pub in in Los Angeles and have a drink there I'd, can't, I'd like to do that I have found do you know any rowers? no but I, I don't do. want anyone who's done it before because I don't want it to be about them I want it to be about us I've already f there's a lad who I met uh, recently in some veteran games in Israel who lost his legs in Afghanistan. He's up for it. We just need to find another two. Okay. And then we can start planning it. So I have got somebody who I'm going to interview next year. I will, and this, and she's absolutely delightful. She's at the moment rowing across the 
Pacific lunatic. But former former colleague right. of mine with their six police, Dawn. Um, I will introduce you and she will give you the appropriate guidance, yeah. I know, because she is absolutely superb and she's, she's mad about it. And um, let's talk offline about the cycle ride yeah. as well. Um, mate, I've, I've found you absolutely captivating. I'm, I'm very proud of you. Thank you. You know, you're... You know, you are a mate, and I'm very proud of what you do here, and I'm proud of what you've done with your MS. Before we conclude this interview, is there anything you'd like to add, alter? No, I think that's uh, that's that's it. I think that's, you pretty much stripped me bare there, mate. It was absolutely <laughs> incredible, and I know that people will listen to you. One thing I will say: if anybody wants to get on and sponsor Andy to do any of these incredible things, um, I will be putting some links up and hopefully you'll be able to help him out. Thank you very much. 